welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a totally serious podcast where we talk about herpetology and all of the latest news in reptile and amphibian research. And we try to keep things interesting and lighthearted while also talking about uh, massive ecological problems. So, I am one of your three co-hosts. My name is Mark D. Schertz. I am a herpetologist and a PhD candidate based in Germany, and I am joined today by my two co-hosts, Ethan and Gabriel. Hello. I- introduce yourselves, boys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I'm Ethan. I am a cartoonist and a reptile and amphibian enthusiast. And I'm Gabriel Ugeto, and I'm a paleo artist and scientific illustrator, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore. Hooray! <laughs> okay. It's great. Gabriel, you have your introduction down. Like, it's always the same, unvarying, and I am complete. It's snowing. What? <laughs> it's well, snowing. It's snowing here, too. Oh, Dear listeners, not snowing in Miami, so. I am very worried <laughs> that I need to go home and put my olive tree inside. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was not expecting snow. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Anyway, what I was saying was, Gabriel is so good at having his introduction down. And, uh, <laughs> and I am not. Actually, Ethan, you as well. You're pretty good, but I'm rubbish. I'm all over the place. <laughs> anyway, unimportant. Hello, welcome to the show. This is where we. This is where we do the show. It's now time. Um, we're we're gonna skip over the mist snake section of this podcast or of this episode because uh, once again we had no mist snakes. Flawless Flash, victory. Well, we, yes, again a flawless victory. <laughs> so this seems to be this seems to be a trend. I don't know. Either we're not getting enough feedback. Or uh, we're just doing super great. Um, on the topic of feedback, we've had some really amazing, nice reviews on things like uh, Apple Podcasts. So there's one by Liam Soros that was left on the American uh, Apple Podcast thing. I don't want to read out the whole the whole text because it's actually so sweet that we nearly died. But uh, I really like the end of the thing where it said, this was the first podcast I've ever listened to of my own accord, as though they've been forced in the past to have listened to other podcasts. <laughs> and I was disappointed to later learn not all podcasts are as good as this one. <laughs> That's so kind. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Liam Soros. That's very nice. We apologize, um, I, we apologize say, for ruining yes, podcasts. I'm just going to say that I'm, I'm specially touched by that uh, yes. review since yeah. since it mentioned me personally as a, a you know because it's a it's a fellow aspiring paleo artist. So he mentioned me especially as the reason why he got into the podcast and um you know it's I'm very flattered. cool. It's very very, sweet. very flattered. It's very sweet. I, I like the description of us as in-depth for being so humorous and incredibly humorous for being so in-depth. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds right, yeah. It's so succinct and true, I hope. Uh, so, yes, thank you very much. And and listeners, if you want to leave us feedback on uh, Apple, I, Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever, uh, that would be really great. It helps us to get listened to by other human beings who might also appreciate it. And they, are, they share it and then we go 
and we become super famous and we don't have to do our day jobs anymore. That's the dream. So, <laughs> um, to follow up on the situation with our Twitter followers, you remember how in the last episode I was like, oh, yeah, we have 500 followers and we have five episodes. Well, now we have 600 followers and this is our sixth episode. So, we're doing a really good job of keeping 100 followers per episode. Please keep it going. Please help sharing the show and stuff and follow us if you're not already. It's very cool when you do so. And we try to keep our Twitter very funny as well. So that's that's the situation with the social media progress. Your update from the field. Every and time now- every time you follow us, a crocodile gets its nictitating membranes. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I dread to think of all of the poor crocodiles <laughs> that can't bear to put their eyes in the water because they don't have the nictitating membranes because you're not following us yet on Twitter. Get on it. What are you doing? <laughs> think of the crocodiles. Okay. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's time for works in progress. So uh, I guess I'm, I'm usually the one who goes first. Yes. Uh, so, so I'll go first. I have had a hell of a month, I tell you. A hell of a month. We had, I had three new papers published. Um, so it's pretty normal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the three new papers, one's a new chameleon. It's a beautiful chameleon. I'll talk about it maybe later a little bit more. But it's, um, it's a member of the Columna group, so it's quite a small species. It's actually the smallest true chameleon, so the smallest chameleonine chameleon from Madagascar. And it's adorable, and I've never seen one alive, <laughs> as is so often the case. Um, but the paper was led by my colleague David, who is who has just this, well, this week is going to submit his PhD thesis, which is crazy. He's been super, super stressed. So that's been very exciting. I've been helping him to, to edit a little bit of his thesis as well. And most importantly, he's got this new paper published and we've got all kinds of other stuff going on there. Blah, blah, blah. So the other papers, uh, one is a, a paper where I published the synonymy of two chameleon species. So actually I've got this month is up one and then down one. Yeah. So we've got one new chameleon. <laughs> exactly. It's a wash. <laughs> yeah, so so we basically we discovered that these two chameleons that are found on this one mountain in northern Madagascar, they're morphologically, um, it's a, a polytypic species. So there are lots of different um, uh, morphotypes, basically. And uh, we discovered that those morphotypes have nothing to do with their sort of genetic differentiation. And as a result, we put them together into one uh, species. Uh, so that's in the genus Brachesia, so a different group of chameleons. It's really great that I'm finally getting a series of chameleon papers because I'm writing big grants about chameleons. Um, so I, I should have some papers <laughs> on them. Um, and finally, uh, I had just yesterday, as we're recording, today's the 18th of November, just yesterday I had a new natural history note published in the Journal of Natural History, where we described um, some dietary records from a few snakes from Madagascar, which is quite cool. There are really nice pictures in that paper. Go to the show notes and check it out. Um, there should be a link there, or at least a link to contact me to get a copy of the paper. 
And uh, yeah, so these are these are very poorly known snakes. And I found some and they seem to have stuff in their stomach. And I was like, oh, let's see. And um, yeah, so I either forced them to regurgitate it or um, or we watch them eat the food or we cut them open once we'd already killed them. So that's cool. And then uh, submitted a few papers as you do, you know, normal. It's a normal November. And, um, and then so what? Every every few months, maybe once or twice a year, um, two of our colleagues, um, Miguel Vences, who is one of my main supervisors, and our colleague uh, Jörn Köhler, they come here to Munich. We sit together for a weekend, usually from about 10 in the morning until at least midnight, and we write on manuscripts and write on papers. And over this weekend, which was a four-day weekend this time, we got through about eight manuscripts, some of which we were starting from scratch and some of which were already standing manuscripts that we sort of brought to the end. But several of them were, I mean, one of them's already been submitted. Uh, that's one that had already been sort of in a good state. And several of the others are really close to being ready to submit. So that's like... That's a crazy way to be super productive and something that's only possible in this field. So, yeah. And um, on a sort of related note, more paper stuff, I am preparing now to send one of my big manuscripts of my PhD, which um, describes a new genus of frogs from Madagascar, to PLOS One. So I'll probably be submitting that at the end of the month, um, which is very exciting to finally have that off the table and get you know, get rid of it so that I can work on all the other things. Microhylids? Yeah, microhylids. Microhylids. Yeah, so I'm doing a lot of grant writing and a lot of R coding and a lot of manuscript stuff. It's just, it's a very, it's been a very, very busy month. Um, and my efficiency during the month has been somewhat quashed by the fact that I got new chameleons. <laughs> so I, um, I bought somewhat at a whim, um, two new chameleons, which are um, Brachysia tealy, which is quite a rare species from Madagascar to make it into the pet trade. And um, yeah, so I bought a pair, um, a male and a female, yeah. that I'm now they, keeping in my office. And every few... They didn't used to be quite as rare. Like, you used to see them Correct, more. yeah. Yeah. But yeah. like everything but now, from Madagascar. Exactly. Yeah. In Germany, it's actually become very difficult to get hold of any animals into Mad uh, out of Madagascar. So yeah. there are a few people who are regularly getting in shipments of, let's say, uh, common species. So you have a lot of like Furcifer pardalis and whatever. But yeah. Brachysia are usually the two species that are coming in are Brachysia superciliaris and Brachysia stumpfi. And this time it happens to have also had Brachysia tealy with it. Some other people got a few of the individuals. I think I got the last male of the select. No, the last female. There were several males, but only one female. So I got the last female. And so I have my couple and I'm hoping that she has eggs and maybe I can start up the whole breeding thing. But yeah, it's a huh, it's been quite a month. But the the my productivity has been somewhat affected by the fact that now every few hours I'm like wanting to get up and go look in my cage and see if I can find the chameleons because they're so cool. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, are cool. they are a cool chameleon yeah they are amazing they're really the behavior is so interesting as well i expect it so i've been i talked with lewis um Wiedemann a lot about these because he's um uh he's something of an expert on on brachysia and all kinds of herps from madagascar and keeping them 
And he was telling me that, oh, yeah, they're they're barely a terrestrial species at all, which I didn't know because I've um, I don't know if I've ever seen them during the day in the field. I've seen them sleeping. Um, and of course, all chameleons, all Burkhizia basically come up off the ground when they're sleeping. But we presume that most Burkhizia are really terrestrial. These are not terrestrial chameleons. I think I've never seen them on the ground except when they're walking in front of the door of the cage. Yeah. So it's a bit. Yeah, that was that was quite surprising. Okay, that's enough from me. I'm sorry, that was on for ages. <laughs> Gabriel, what's going on? How was your month? Oh, it's been a very busy month for me also. Um, I, well, first of all, I got... Uh, uh, so John Pickrell, who's this, um, who well, many of you must know from Twitter, um, did an interview with me and other paleo artists for a National Geographic feature about the Picture in the Past exhibition at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science. And um, it's a nice interview with um, also a gallery uh, of some selected works that were um, in the exhibition. So one of my three uh, reconstructions that I was you know, showing in the exhibition, got selected, and they did a small interview with me and other two paleo artists. Um, so that was really cool, and um, it got to yeah. The showcase. artwork is beautiful. It's it's probably one of my favorites of yours. The, the it's the mob of dromaeosaurs, right? The, the uh, dimorphodon, yeah. Dimorphodon. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Thank you. So that one got selected. I got a I got a small paragraph there from an interview that he did to me where I spoke about one of my biggest pet peeves in paleo art, which is I hate depicting dinosaurs as lost bloodthirsty yeah. kaiju monsters <laughs> with like yeah. a maniacal eye <laughs> look in the eye and, and their mouth open and screaming everywhere. Are you are and, you suggesting you know, that predators don't scream at every single animal that they uh, encounter? Yeah, right. On this topic, <laughs> you know that um, there there was just this event where um, Darren Nash and uh, Danny oh, Rabiotti yeah. and, yeah. and they were presenting in London, and uh, there is this picture of the of the tyrannosaurus mating. Yes, and yeah. again, both of them have their mouths wide open. It's like they it's, can't it's, even keep them closed when they're having it on everywhere, and it's really <laughs> annoying. And, and I also detest the the fact that there has to be blood spilling everywhere, where you know that's not that common. Actually, when animals are 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 uh, uh, being chased or something, their blood pressure. The blood thickens, so they don't bleed as much as they would, you know, normally. So it, it, all these things is really annoying. So I am. This is one of my biggest biggest pet peeves. I'm happy that I got to talk about it. Um, I also did an interview for uh, Dave Hone, which is this famous paleontologist, interviewed me also uh, for his uh, blog, uh, Archosaur Musing. So. That's probably gonna come up at some point. I also, and I've been working really hard the past month and there, it's gonna be happening all November and December on two big commissions that I cannot really talk about much, but one of them is for a children's book um, about dinosaurs. And the other one is I got to commission to reconstruct a ton of animals, including some really cool um, place to see mammals, some really cool um, Paleozoic um, reptile. So that is for a museum exhibit. I hope to talk more about it in the future. Mm, cool. um, so I just want to say to any clients that might be hearing this, I'm completely booked for 
November and December, I have a small opening for a commission on January, but I'm going to be working also on a on, a, on another commission uh, for uh, illustrating some bit vipers. So that's going to be very excited, very exciting. Some really cool bit viper species. Cool. So. So no uh, um, last-minute dimorphodon stocking stuffers. <laughs> no. So if you if you're gonna commission something, um, let me know now so I can schedule the schedule it for January or February. And yeah. that's what I've been going. <laughs> it must that's, take. That's what I've been going on on my side. It must take incredible organizational skills to manage this. You, I mean, entirely freelance, right? You you don't have yeah. an agent. You don't have no. any. I mean, I can't imagine. I'm really bad at managing my own time because I'm like, oh, I want to do everything. And then I well, just like, I know, do, I but I'm feel, not I don't feel, serving I don't anybody's feel deadlines. I, I don't feel I'm that good. I think I'm, 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 you know, a lot of times I forget to email some people sometimes and, and stuff like that. It's always like a constant stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and also, you know, on the meantime, I'm still working on my book to see if I finally finish it and I can, you know, get it published next year. So, you know, it's, it's a mess, but I try to do the best I can. What about you, Ethan? Uh, as far as, uh, email organization or, or what have I been working at? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Your, your <laughs> uh, cause I'm both. Um, yeah. So this month I did my first, I vended my first reptile show as the newtist the newtist new has and arrived i sold almost everything wow. i i sold like 20 axolotls i sold a bunch of uh marbled newts and stuff like that so it was a really really good show and i sold all the art and comics and stuff that i brought too so that's awesome yeah so that's it was cool. really good it was a good experience it was in rochester at what's called rexpo uh rochester new york so it was uh it was good, and I've already booked a table for. They do it every every six months, so I'll do it again in April. Mm. Your so uh, your stand looked really nice. I like the uh, the sign combined with that that wooden. Yeah, so I had a, 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 a was great. Good fr- a good friend of mine. Uh, I commissioned that that stand, and it we made it so that it fit the little deli cups and everything. Perfect. Yeah. So, yeah, it was good. So yeah, so oh, that was cool. That was the big dig thing this month. Uh, other projects, finishing some other stuff up, uh, trying to get my commission queue back down so I can take a break from that for a little while. And mm. that's where I'm at. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also desperately trying to like either put things fixedly into like uh on on hold so that i don't even have to think about them or at least trying to like i I don't know about you but sounds like you're pretty similar gabriel like where i i don't know i spent a good last two years or so basically just saying yes to every project and that's that's got to stop so yeah yeah that's a dangerous habit i i don't say yes to everything there are actually a few that i you know if it is something that is that i know it's going to be you know, because I get sometimes asked to do stuff that I know, and you know, yeah. like yeah, you know, like the stuff that involves structures. Like somebody wanted me to design once, like uh, uh, an exhibit, but they wanted me to like, you know, and I'm terrible doing anything that has to do with buildings or, you know, I, I just <laughs> yeah. suck at it. So I know that I'm not going to be doing that. Or, but I, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm I have been really uh, uh, lucky that I, I've gotten, yeah. 
all the stuff that I've been working on is something that I really want to do. Like I'm something that I'm excited. So I think, I mean, it's, it's like, cause before it was hard to find job, you know, commissions. And then you go from a point of being in demand for a little while. And then you have to learn the other side of that, which is to say like, yeah, I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. Plus, plus that you know on. that when you work freelance like that, some months are really good. Some months are not that yeah. bad. So yeah. you have to be able to ride the wave as it comes. Right. And that's, that's a skill in and of itself, I think. Is, yeah. You know. <laughs> it's not that easy. I do not envy you. I certainly <laughs> do not. <laughs> so what I'm trying to do, and I don't know about you, Ethan, is I'm trying to get, because the other things that you end up working all the time, 24 <clears> seven, right. all the time. So I'm trying to take the two last weeks of December Sort of off. I, think that's I, a good I know plan, I won't be yeah. able to get him completely off, but at least sort of off. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's the time when I plan to be making the most progress on my thesis. <laughs> yeah, I discovered that my um, my contract ends a month before I thought it would. And uh, as a result, I am under slightly more time pressure with my thesis submission than I thought. So. Oh. <laughs> Deep breaths. That's Deep breaths. Good. Yeah, it's great to find out you have you have a month less time than you thought. Yeah, that's good. It's always good. Yeah, I mean, yes. Yeah, it's it's not ideal, but it's okay. It'll be <laughs> fine. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. That's my general policy. Okay, good. So we've we've caught up on the works in progress. There's uh, seems to be a lot going on. Okay, so. Uh, I have a small advertisement to give, and that advertisement is for uh, the journal Genes. There's going to be a special issue on evolutionary genetics of reptiles and amphibians, which is quite cool. This is the sort of thing that doesn't come up all that often. Um, and it's going to be org um, the, the, the editors of this special issue are Sebastian Steinfatz, who is a member of the of my group in Braunschweig, um, Dr. Jonathan Marshall, who's based in Utah, and uh, Dr. Katharina Weinberg-Valero, who is um, who has also done a lot of stuff in Madagascar, um, but she's now based in Hull. And so the, the main focus of this new a special issue of the journal Genes, which has a moderately a quite good impact factor, something like 3.2 or something, um, is it's about um, all kinds of things relative to the genetics and, and stuff of reptiles and amphibians. So um, the topics for this special issue include, but are not limited to, evolutionary systematics, patterns and mechanisms of speciation, local adaptation, phenotypic plasticity and epigenetics, gene expression, genetics of emerging infectious diseases, diversity and genetics of microbiota. So it's a nice broad sort of spectrum thing. The and best a paper will get in a pear tree. <laughs> the best paper will get a waiver of the publication fees. And the publications are due by the 1st of January. So get you've got a month up. and a bit. So <laughs> get, get on it. But if you happen to have a manuscript that's already rearing to go and you want to submit it uh, now to a, a really quite good journal, then um, do that and, and get, get, on, get your butt off the ground. 
You can find the, there will be a link to the advertisement thing with the uh, call for papers in the show notes. You know what time it is. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) It's time for dun 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 breaking newts. It's, it's not going to be a very long way. breaking newts. This oh, is going to be yeah. a very long breaking newts. Okay, so we yeah. have at least seven quite important papers that we would like to talk about. Um, some of them we're just going to barely touch on. We're going to bring them to your attention and then be like, woohoo, go and should look I, at it yourself. Should I set All a timer? All of the things. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we can think about it. We can think about doing something like, uh, I don't know, a seven minute rule. <laughs> Um, that's not gonna work. <laughs> you no, that's not gonna work. Because because the Tetsu two minute rule is so realistic. <laughs> I was just thinking that you know within uh, anyway the important I'm have thing you is start and then I'm gonna take away thirty percent of the time I told you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but important thing is in the show notes. On the website, squamatespod.com, you can find links to all of these papers, and you'll find the full references there. So if there's anything that we've only barely touched on that you think is more interesting, you can go and have a look at it. Obviously, the things that are behind paywalls will still be behind paywalls, but there are ways of getting around that. So, And, and plenty of them this time are open access, which is really yes, cool. Yes, most of them are so, open access. Yeah. I, have, I have endeavored to make as many as possible open access, but... The first one is not. So, <laughs> uh, our first paper is by Barrow et al. in the journal Systematic Biology. It is called Targeted Sampling and Target Capture Assessing Phylogeographic Concordance with Genome Wide Data. Slight reading. So, uh, very light reading. This, this paper is by um, Barrow, Lemon, and Lemon. And people who work in... Sounds like a, sounds like a lawyer firm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Well, people who are familiar with uh, genomics and phylogenomics in reptiles and amphibians in particular will be familiar with the lemons. So Alan Lemon and Emily Moriarty Lemon together have developed this method for sequencing ultra-conserved elements across the uh, uh yeah across the genome which allows you to do really cool uh deep phylogenomic sort of studies they've made their method somewhat um mm, proprietary which makes it rather difficult to use without spending a huge amount of money and um it also yeah i don't want to get into it so this paper actually appeared first online in March, but is now published for real uh, as of the 1st of November. And what they've done in the paper is they've used a method. So they've used this method that they developed. Um, specifically, it's it's called target capture. So in target capture, you develop what are called baits. And these baits are like little strands of DNA, like little primers that are used to fish out parts of the genome that you're interested in in um, sequencing. It's like the cream and you game. Can, uh, a little bit, a little bit. Except <laughs> you can't see what I'm doing, everybody. But I'm it's, doing the crane it's game. not at all. It's not at all like the crane game. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's more like you know when you were a kid and you would put sort of um uh you would put craft glue all over a piece of card and then you would sprinkle mm. um you'd sprinkle glitter on it and then you'd blow the glitter so that there's glitter now all over your house but some of the glitter sticks to the glue <laughs> Okay. okay. That's yep. that's a lot like what target capture is. <laughs> You're getting the glitter, and then you can amplify the glitter and sequence it. And what's really cool is that that makes that that, that creates the ability to have rather um, repeatable, rather comparable data sets. So in most of these genomic techniques, what you get is rather random. You'll get a selection of the genome, but it's not necessarily the same selection for two different animals. But if you use this target capture technique and you've developed a large library of baits, you can get the same fragments from all these different animals at a genomic scale. So huge numbers of data, so huge, mean, huge volumes seeing, of data. you mean like homologous you can area, get exact, areas of yeah, DNA? Exactly. Homologous areas of DNA. Okay. So what, they, what the lemons have done is developed this specifically for what are called ultra-conserved elements, which are conserved across huge domains of life. Maybe not domains, but at kingdom level probably. Like and uh, because like, those like are Hox, so like Hox genes or something like that. Like, yes, yeah. so, sort of. Yeah, yeah. But okay. they're still more conserved than Hox genes. Hox genes exhibit rather a lot of uh, of variation. But what's cool about this technique is that so you can use a primer basically for the conserved region. But if you sequence into the unconserved region, you get variation, and then you can do all kinds of genomic. Um, uh, playing around to figure out what's going on in that situation. Okay. So right. what they've done here is they've used this hybrid enrichment um, technique, this target capture technique on four different <coughs> frogs uh, or four different. Yeah. So four different. sorry, my Eleutherodactylus is calling in the background. <laughs> I, I can't make it stop. I've got the light on and everything. It's, it's, it's unstoppable. So we're just going to have a backdrop. Yeah, um, he's our mascot anyway, now. Exactly. Yes. So we've we've got these um, these four frogs, and they sequenced rather a lot of of uh, genetic genomic data, and then they're using that data to test. Um, wait a second. <laughs> to test. <laughs> I don't remember what they're testing. <laughs> That's the worst. I think the you know what? Let's just you know what? No, no, this is good. You know what we should do is when the when the frog starts going off, that means you have to stop talking about that paper and move on to the next one. That's the timer. Oh no. No, this you know, is humiliating. When, when you're when you're hearing a lot of like um, stuff about genetics and stuff that you don't understand, <laughs> you hear the frog. Okay. What I want to say, basically, the gist is they use these methods, and they showed that. The data sets produce. Really, it's not very interesting. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. 
Uh, I can't no, even I mean, remember what they... Why, why did I not write in the notes what they actually found? <laughs> did you see? I didn't write the note. Oh, God. Can we start the entire section over? <laughs> no, no. What no, am I trying no. to say? What What is the main thing with this paper? What? I don't know. <laughs> what, does mean? what does it mean? What does it mean? Oh, it's a disaster. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> oh, it's the worst. <laughs> it was the frog. It was the frog in the bag that you completely lost the thread. I completely. I lost the thread so much. I can't even remember what the paper is about. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should. Yeah, let's. <coughs> no, that's gonna be great. That's gonna be great. That's gonna be great. <laughs> uh, I have to apologize. Okay. So. Ooh. Okay. So basically, they took these frogs. The frogs include um, a rana. That's probably well, rana sphenocephala. Hylus Which is not a rana anymore. It's a huh? lithobatus. <laughs> Again! <laughs> okay, but they have literally used the name rana in the paper. <laughs> oh, they're using rana when they mean lithobates. They're using rana. They mean lithobates for sure. Yeah, yeah. And hyla squirella and hyla cenaria. I don't know if those are still in hyla. Uh, Probably not. No, I don't think that is anymore. Is it? I, yeah, no, I, I, they might be because they're North American, right? Those are, those are from here. Well, I thought only the European, yeah, no, it's now Dryophytes. Oh, Dryophytes, yeah. Dryophytes squirella and Dryophytes cenaria. Yeah, that, and, that's and a, Huh? That's a, what's the name of squirella? The, it's a, the common one that you find here it's, everywhere. It's called the squirrel tree frog. That's why it's called <laughs> squirella. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing great. We're doing great this episode. It's amazing. <laughs> okay, so basically, they use this method, this genomic method. They sequence 375 nuclear loci that are homologous across these four different groups, four different species. And they evaluated the concordance of their genetic patterns in a phylogeographic context. Okay? Okay. So, then they compared the results with nuclear, like normal mitochondrial and nuclear sequences and found little correspondence of genetic patterns with putative biogeographic barriers. Okay? Okay. So, the variation in the phylogeographic structure detected may be related to differences in natural history. <laughs> because the two habitat generalists ex exhibited less population structure. This is very weird. Like, why didn't you just use microsatellites? <laughs> Anyway, okay, we're going to move on because I thought this would be a really interesting paper. It turns out, nah. 
I still not sure what they were trying to prove with it. Like, what was the point? The point was this paper in two in in the year two thousand by Aviz or Aviz outlined aspects of concordance that result when data exhibit significant phylogeographic signal. So they're trying to test basically phylogeographic concordance with genome-wide data instead of the normal nuclear data or, or like small-scale data that they're, you would use. They're trying use. to corroborate another method is what you're saying. They're trying to update an old method. Okay. okay. So they're trying to take this old method that uses like phylogeographic signal from normal amounts of DNA and use it at a genomic level, which is potentially very useful. Okay. I mean, it is really useful. It could be a really, really cool because it can help us to understand the principles behind the distribution of things. Okay, um, okay, and okay. That's actually, right, exactly. And 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 there are several species, uh, several several papers that have just come out, including some that we're going to talk about, that really could have benefited from using this method as opposed to the methods that they actually wound up using, but probably couldn't have used it because it's still exorbitantly expensive. Mm. So. There you go. The Eleutherodactylus is calling. It's time to move on to the next paper. It is time. All right. <laughs> okay. Next paper. Prates et al. I don't know how you pronounce that name, but I presume Prat it's Prates. I would imagine it's Prates. It's Ivan Prates. 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 Okay. Prates et al. In ecology and evolution. I don't think this is nature ecology and evolution. I think this is the Oxford University Press Journal, Ecology and Evolution, which is a little confusing, if I'm honest. <laughs> um... No, it's the Wiley Journal, Ecology and Evolution. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So, the paper is titled, Local Adaptation in Mainland Anole Lizards. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You know, Anole Lizards, anole lizards are going to be a feature but, in every show. But in fact, the best thing is, so the, so the full title of the paper is Local Adaptation in Mainland <clears throat> Anole Lizards. Um <laughs> <laughs> integrating population history and genome environment associations and it was it, it's in press probably i can't really tell but it first appeared online on the 6th of november the what's cool is in light of our last uh, our last discussion oh, on the topic of what yeah. no they're not using nora no, they're, they're not using no, a sorry Mark we're going to use I am making a point. We're so they've described they've discussed these things as anolis or Tony and anolis punctatus. Oh, we're yes. instead going to refer to them as norops or Tony and dactyloa punctata, I think would be the correct um, yeah, emendation. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. Um I'm not sure that dactyloa is feminine, is it? Yeah, it is. It's dactyloa punctata. Yeah. Okay. All right. Dactyloa <coughs> punctata. And so, um, yeah, we're going to talk about them because it's so much more informative, especially in the context of this paper, when we're talking about um, these two different anoles that are not anoles, but they're members of the, I mean, they're members of the same, of the um, Dactyloidae. They, they're actually uh, anole. They're anoles, they're just not in anolis. Right, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, <clears throat> and so, right. What they do, they, they, they use this. agrees. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. Luther he's on board. He's I on keep board. imagining him with like, a, like an old-timey vaudeville hook, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So this paper uses a method that's called Genome Environment Association Analysis, or G-E-A-A for short. GIA. I guess we'll call it GIA. Um, and what GIA is, is a test for correlations between the allele frequencies at multiple different loci and their, and the environmental predictors that might underlie them across an entire species' range. And because of the way that this works, it can be used to account for neutral patterns of population genetic structure um, that can mimic signatures of selection. So this method is potentially really useful, especially in contexts like this one where you're trying to understand a phylogeography over a very large area. And in this case, they're basically trying to find out what is the phylogeography of the, or, or the biogeography at least, of these different um, members, these, these um, yeah, it's basically anoles, how, basically? how these anoles extended into the Atlantic forest in Brazil, which is this this band of forest in the southeast of Brazil, separated from Amazonia by a band of grasslands and cerrado and all that. So they, yeah. what they're trying to understand is how this group of forest anoles, both both punctatas or punctata and um, ortoni are. Um, Amazonian species and Ortoni behaves like a bark anole. It's a it's a it's somewhat like a bark anole. It's a it's an animal that lives in tree trunks high in the trees. And punctata is a it's a more of a trunk crown anole. It lives on the trunks and the branches of large trees. So what they're trying to show is how these two species, which by the way are likely species complexes. There more be there, there might be more than one species within them um, invaded or or, or extended into the Atlantic forest of southeastern Brazil. Yeah. So, it, what they found is that their divergence. So in every case, they they have a divergence that. Um, a bit between the Amazonian and the Atlantic forest populations, and it dates back to the mid Pleistocene. And then they had a little bit of gene flow afterward, but the the dominant um, timing of diverg divergence was in the mid Pleistocene. Gabriel, how many how many million years ago was that? Um, I think it. The, I think the 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 ones that they're saying is like one point two million years or something. The 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 one they expanded, and then they have some influxes of more recent influxes of 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 some genetic in, right. ex exchange between the two. So that but means even, that probably yeah. those areas have been connected and disconnected and connected and disconnected during yeah. the time. Yeah, and it sounds like even at the oldest, that's a relatively recent thing. Well, you know, yeah, but uh, that's still a considerable. Mm -hmm. Time, mm -hmm. yeah. 1.2 million years, especially yeah. for extant species to still be considered um, right, uh, uh, right. conspecific with one another. I mean, maybe yeah. you would already start drawing lines there or whatever. Um, you're right. You're what right. I thought was right. quite interesting is that they they found more association of like more environmentally uh, environmental gradient associated genes in. Uh, in the Dactylloa species, so in the in punctata, than in the norops, in norops or tony, so <clears throat> it, they they are adapting in different ways, which may speak to the way that they're, I mean, their ecomorphs and how different their ecomorphs are between these two different habitats. 
So both of them were able to colonize after some kind of biogeographic event that sort of opens up the corridor for colonization. But they have done it in a different way, because yeah. poss possibly because the environment differs more for one than for the other. What I think they, they mentioned that in the Atlantic forest, Punctara uses um, higher and less, you know, cooler areas. Like it, it, I think it, it occupies cooler and less humid localities that what Ortoni does. So right. that's interesting. In general, yeah. I think the, the Atlantic forest is a less humid environment than the Amazonia. So yeah, it Amazonia. is. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a really yeah. cool paper, and I mean, and Ivan, Ivan Prates has done a lot of research, especially uh, on Anolis or Dactyloa puntata. So, you know, it's a, it's a super complex, uh, there, there have been some papers done in the past that have shown that there are several lineages within Dactyloa puntata that are, you know, good candidates to be separate species, but it's so complicated that it's difficult to, you know, as always. And there are a lot of areas still that are not sampled properly. So, yeah. Same old story yeah. that we're going to be repeating throughout this episode. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes a serious problem on the long scale. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think we can move on to the next paper, which is by Sun et al., um, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the PNAS. And uh, the paper is entitled, Species Groups Distributed Across Elevational Gradients Reveal Convergent and Continuous Genetic Adaptation to High Elevations. Very this paper is yeah. this paper is really interesting. Yeah. Especially if we remember back in episode four where we were talking about Thermophis and, um, and Thermophis' adaptations to high elevation. And especially we remember that there were like adaptations of the metabolism and um, and the the repair mechanisms in the genome. All stuff to keep in mind when you're um, looking at this new paper. So what they did is they compared four frogs in the genus um, Nanurana, well three three Nanurana and and another um, close relative from lower down, and four lizards in the genus Phrynocephalus, and. Um, what they showed is that these lizards have all these these clades have um, colonized higher altitudes instead of being pushed up up them. So there's there are two ways basically to get to the top of a mountain. You can either climb it or you can wait for the mountain to rise beneath you. And what these have all done is climbed the mountain. And because of that, you get this sort of cladogenesis up the slope. And what's really cool is that you have, in, as one of their results, uh, sequential adaptation. So the higher the clades are getting, the more dramatic that you're seeing these changes to their um, to their genomes, and especially also uh, especially in DNA repair genes, energy metabolism pathways, um, and and other pathways that are associated with high altitude. Um, living, high elevation living. I need to stop saying al altitude. Altitude is, has to do with how high you are above the ground, not how high you are above sea level. So, um, right. I'm sure they're going to really write in for that one. <laughs> I keep having <laughs> my colleagues complain at me about it. 
tortured. I, I make this mistake all the time in my writing, and then people complain. So, um, what what I found really interesting is that this week as well, there's been a new paper published in um, Genome Biology and Evolution by. Sorry, I can't say this name. Gnecci Ruscone et al. Gnecci I think Ruscone. So. I guess Italian. it's an Italian ne name. Yeah. Necchi. 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 I mean, it looks oh, like Necchi without the O. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Genobiology and Evolution on the polygenic adaptation to high altitude in Tibetan and Sherpa genomes. So humans. Uh, and wow. all the things that they are doing with their genomes. And that paper is crazy cool. So if yeah, you go, did, go to the did, show notes, have a look at it. Did they say that, we, that, that those populations inherited that gene from a Denisovan ancestor? I think oh. it comes from a Denisovan. They, they, that, that gene that allows them to have a, an adaptation for high altitude in humans, is, uh, is, it was taken from our mixture with Denisovan humans. That's what I had understood from time ago. So. The, the the paper does not mention the word Denisovan. So I had understood that from other papers. So I was wondering if this is a different. It's. Gene. I mean, that's that's yeah. So that sounds like it could be a thing, but it, it could be a thing, but it's at least not mentioned in this in the paper. So I guess maybe. <laughs> yeah. Like, so that yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> it says no. <laughs> um, I thought it was really cool the way that the, the I mean the, the patterns that they're observing mirror so beautifully those that we saw in Hydrophis, um, and not Hydrophis, but Thermophis. Thermophis, yeah. So Thermophis, we're also doing this thing. They're going up the slope and they're exhibiting extreme because they're like the highest dwelling ectotherms or, or reptiles anyway um, they're doing really crazy things to their genomes in order to cope and they're living specifically in uh, hot springs which of course these animals that they're studying in this in this other in the this sun adult paper are not but um, still we see really similar evolutionary changes especially to DNA repair that means that the the extent of DNA repair mechanism change, that is necessary when adapting to high elevations is considerable, much more than I would have expected. Um, I, I think so that's for really people interesting. That are, for for herpetologists that are working with Lyolamus um, lizards in the Andes, they should be paying close attention to this and probably trying to replicate this in Lyolamus <laughs> that live very very high up in the Andes. We should it get those guys. Yeah. We should get those guys Absolutely. together. Is what you're saying. Yeah, we should get them to talk together. <laughs> <laughs> and the Lake Titicaca water frog. Yeah, oh, the, that, uh, the hairy one, right? Telmatobius. Telmatobius. Yeah, there are several of them. There's a large genus. Yeah. I thought yeah, it was a monotypic genus. There are several Telmatobius. Well, I was. I was going to be commissioned to do weird filaments, right? Well, they have like folds. No, that's of, the hairy frog. They have okay. folds of they have folds of, of skin that allows them to trap air and breathe. Uh, sort of hellbender style. Yeah, exactly. But Telmatobius huh. has numerous species. Numerous, numerous species. Wow. I was actually Telmatobius yeah. has a lot of species. Yeah, I told you. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's all over the Andes. They have a, a whole bunch of species. But but the one that lives in Titicaca uh, is the one that de that develops those. I think it's one of the few that develops those. Folds that make them mm -hmm. look crazy. Right. 
Exactly. And never comes and, on land. And a side note on this um, study that we were talking about, just to point out that Phrynocephalus um, is a genus of agamid lizards that are super cool. It's the toad-headed agamas. They have those weird, um, yeah, they, yeah. Those weird. Uh, how do you call that? The, the frills or whatever. Frills. Yeah, yeah, it, it looks like the demigorgon to... from exactly. uh, from Stranger exactly. Things. Exactly. Yeah. It's the demigorgon agamas. Yeah, yeah, the demigorgon if, agama. If you haven't seen them, uh, Google them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Toad-headed agamas. They're awesome. It's, it it's like, it. think, think like bearded dragon from the upside down, you know? Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because they also have those bright red, yeah. bright red, so they look crazy. Yeah, it's very weird. And they they are the lizards that whose tails were taken to be representative of chameleon tails in like all of the, um, an, in, in all a- animated movies. So uh, li- chameleon tails can only bend ventrally. The oh. only curl ventrally, whereas Phrynocephalus tails only bend dorsally, and they curl dorsally. So the um, chameleons that are animated are almost always have their tails curling in the wrong direction for a chameleon. But yes, anyway, <laughs> we can move on. Uh, so <laughs> when I was compiling, to die on too. I mean, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> When, when I was compiling the show notes for this thing, I so now I have like notifications on my computer every time a new paper is published in several different journals so that I can just check. Is it herp related so that I can easily find it for the show and then put it in my show notes folder? Well, <laughs> I, uh, over the last few weeks, I sort of did this, kept doing this without realizing what was happening. And in the last month, oh, I just whacked my microphone. In the last month, there have been no fewer than six papers published or released as preprints in the journal Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution that are about herps, which is ridiculous. Mm. And almost all of them are systematic revisions or biogeographic stories or phylogeographic stories or a combination of the two. So I'll just run down very quickly what each group is. And I know that um, <laughs> that Gabriel wants to talk about one of these in more detail. Oh. Yeah, 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 a very important group for anybody that's working in the neotrogs. Right. So we'll get to that in a second. So there is Myers et al. who were talking about Lampropeltis alterna in the Chihuahuan Desert and their diversification. There is Engelbrecht et al., uh, systematics of African green and bush snakes in the Drink. genus Philothamnus. <laughs> Liu et al. Test of timing of verification of Central Asia using Eremias Velox, the rapid race runner, which is a really cool name for a lizard. <laughs> rapid um, runner. I was going to say, the I really rapid like, race runner. Uh, uh, Nanorana, you know, that we just had there. Yeah, Nanorana is a great, is a great Nanorana. name. Nanorana. It's true. <laughs> um, then there is a paper by Raphael Dessau, who is a friend of mine and colleagues on the biogeography and phylogeny of the Chiasmocleus, microhylid frogs, which is really cool. Um, talks about menstruation and stuff. Very related to my own work. And then there's this paper by Torres Car- Carvajal. 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 Torres Carvajal. 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 Torre Carvajal. I can't make uh-huh. that sound. Sorry. Et <laughs> al. <laughs> 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 On the phylogeny diversity and biogeography of cypo snakes. 
Kironios. Kironios. Gabriel. Sipos. Sipo, Sipo snakes. Yeah. I apologize. So, so for any for anybody who's a herpetologist or anybody that knows anything about neotropical snakes, this is super important because for many reasons. It's actually this paper is very important for many reasons. One of them, the importance of properly identifying museum material that or, or, or specimens or, or or please people that work with genetic stuff learn how to identify. Specimens. So then your genetic work is proper, is, 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 you know, it actually reflects real data and you don't get crazy results of this is, you know, uh, 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 showing them as uh, paraphyletic or stuff when they are not. So um, this is really important because Chironius is a very big part of the um, snake fauna in the Neotropics. It's a large genus. It keeps becoming increasingly larger. It has a very complicated taxonomy. Uh, it started up as being a relatively small genus, but we have found out that, you know, there are very many, many scriptic lineages. It's, a, it's complicated, partly also because the descriptions have been particularly bad over the years, so there's no good diagnosis until relatively recently. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it, in more recent times, that big paper about um, squamates by uh, phylogeny by um, Pyron showed them as being paraphyletic. So there was this group of this uh, number of species that appeared to belong to a different clade without, within colubrids. Uh, so they, they, I think it was um, Chironius, uh, let me double check, Chironius carinatus and Chironius quadricarinatus that appear to be closer to species like Leptophis, the pirate snakes, uh, and other groups of colubrids. Why, while uh, whereas uh, other species like Chironius scrollus or Chironius fuscus appear to be m more closely related to um, Drymarchon or other colubrids. So for a, for a while, everybody was like, "What? Chironius is not monophyletic," and it went. It was crazy because Chironius are. Um, very different as a genus from other uh, neotropical species. They are easily identifiable because they only have 10 or 12 dorsal scale rows, which is, for anybody that knows about snakes, that's very few scale rows. They have very large um, scale rows, uh, dorsal scale rows. So um, this paper, actually, there have been a few recent papers that have proved that the, those uh, uh, Analysis by Pyron and other uh, uh, other papers that appear after Pyron's that have found them as being uh, paraphyletic were actually wrong, and then uh, Chironius is, is a monophyletic group. Um, it, but it is also what this paper found was that there are even more cryptic lineages within Chironius and. While we now think that there are about 22 species, there might be even more. And you have to consider that only a few, you know, a few, a decade ago or so, there were only thought to be around 16 species, 10 species. And part of that is because um, the, the history of the genus has been very complicated taxonomically. And there's this big work by Dixon in 1993 I'm holding the book. <laughs> you wanna you wanna drop it on the table and do the book yes, drop test? The, it's, not, it's not that big, but let's do the <laughs> the, the mic drop. 
Very good. Very good. Yeah, it sounded sound good. Sounded good. So it was a monographic revision of the genius, and it was very good at that point because you know it basically brought like a, a real diagnosis for each species. The problem is that as with many books from that time, and, and Dixon in particular, that was particularly bad about this, he had all these subspecies concept issues. He created a bunch of subspecies with intergrade zones. And so all they're that. really like locales, more like, uh, or morphs. Well, kind of a thing. no, there are a lot of times they are actually separate species. And these they're totally different species. Yeah. yeah. And these intergrade zones are more different species. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So that confused things a little. And, and, and anybody that works in the neotropics, I had to solved that issue in a paper I wrote about a Maiva-Maiva complex, which was suffering from the same issue. And usually those when you're writing those kind of papers, you have to, you know, it's complicated because you also have to go through literature and a million names. And those are sometimes very uh, uh, old species that have been described a long time ago. So there are a bunch of different names that you have to go through the literature. It's a mess. So um, it's what, going back to this paper, it's really good that uh, Torres Carvajal now has, you know, found good evidence that the genus is uh, mm -hmm. monophyletic, that there are all these uh, uh, cryptic lineages. Uh, for example, uh, Chironius monticola has a lot of lineages, which is not surprising for a snake that is distributed all along the Andes in all those valleys and different altitudes, you are bound to have some. It's a yeah. great source for species pumping. Exactly. Um, and uh, the other cool thing they found was that um, some of the papers that have used some species, uh, for some of the molecular studies that have been uh, recently published, that had found some species to be paraphyletic, in particular, Curonius multiventris was because the specimens that had been uh, used for those studies had been wrongly identified. And that brings to me the importance that when you're going to do a study, you have to be a good mm. morphologist as well. Uh, so this important. Is a, that is such an important point. Can you just stop and say that again? Say yes. it again very clearly <laughs> for the listener. <laughs> Please do good morphology work when you are doing all molecular check, studies. Check, check the morphological identity of your specimens before yes. putting them in your phylogeny. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's a big so, issue. Some people might be aware of the fight that I have gotten into about certain microhylids. Uh, so my, the group that I specialize in are the, are the cofiline microhylids, which are endemic to Madagascar. There was a paper published uh, on all microhylids that made taxonomic changes when they shouldn't have made taxonomic changes because they had not checked the identity of the specimens that they were using. So they found, for example, two genera to be paraphyletic with respect to one another because they had misidentified half of the species concerned. So their specimens were, of course, in the wrong genus, and they made it look like they had been paraphyletic, but they were not paraphyletic. They were... They are monophyletic genera, but they've just been put in the wrong stupid genus because people had not checked what the animals looked like. 
Yeah. You cannot it, trust anything until you've gone back. It, if you're going to make a change, go back to the type material. Check what your species is. is that, yeah, so people, yeah. There is a big problem. Sometimes these people that are working on these uh, uh, molecular-only studies really don't know how to identify one species from the other if you put it in front of them. It's, it's What's really scary. funny is that this particular paper was written by people who do, should, should, do not, but should be able to tell animals apart. And they had given it up for hopeless. They'd said, no, we can't tell the difference. We, with our cursory look at these animals, cannot tell them apart. Therefore, they must be the same thing. <laughs> Which is so stupid. It's like, oh yeah, I look at a spider. That spider and that spider, they look the same. I'm going to all put there's, them in the same species. I mean, yeah, there's there's plenty of examples of, of, of animals where we can't really tell, but... They can. Right. I mean, it's, it, it depends it, on how expert well, you, you know, are. I, at like, I think of gray tree frogs. Uh, you know, there's the, the, the copes gray and the... But I'm going to say something about that. I'm going right. to say something okay, about that. Okay, but you know what I was going to say, right? They're, they're, yeah, but, but, but I think a lot of the problem also is that you cannot imagine how much how many descriptions are badly written and they're not good. People have not taken the time yeah, to look yeah, at species yeah. in detail. And I, even here in the United States, I, for a while, I, and I'm still one of my projects, I wanted to do a, a, a guide of uh, reptiles of uh, South Florida. And I couldn't find good descriptions of animals that are, you know, common. Common, yeah. It, I, I was yeah. like, really? There are not good descriptions in the United States? So, you know... Or the descriptions yeah. are I mean, a lot of the things know, in the date. states are so old, exactly, exactly. that they yeah. they can no longer be really relied upon. But when we were talking what, last time or two times ago about how there's often like you know jars full of these things in the museum, you know, in the museum, and it's not like we don't necessarily have the the specimens either. It's mm. just you know, yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so, um, to close this study, I, I want to say that it's a really good study. Uh, Torres Carvajal and, and colleagues used, you know, many the mo the the the, the most uh, number the the biggest largest number of Chironius species that have ever been used in any other study. So this is the most complete. It's our first step in understanding the biogeography and um, true taxonomy of this genus. However. Is still incomplete because such large areas remain unsampled. Yeah. In, in particularly Colombia and Venezuela, which are key in the distribution of many species. Unfortunately, you know, due to other reasons, those we those it's not easy to get samples from there. But um, but when that happens, and I'm sure eventually it will, it will finally this will be, you know, I, I think this is a great first step in that direction. It's an yeah. awesome study. You should check it out. Um, I, I was really glad to to see it. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, I I just wanted to comment on their BioGeo Bears um, <laughs> analysis. So, um, BioGeo Bears is a really popular package in R that's now being used a lot to um, reconstruct phylogeography of clades, <laughs> and usually it's relatively like. The, the patterns are usually relatively clear. <laughs> in this particular case, when they get back to the basal most node of their clade, it is an absolute mess. It's like <laughs> it's impossible to infer where the the group actually um, uh, originated because they have more or less equal weighting among all of the possible origins. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> saying it was aliens, <laughs> but it was aliens. 
it's it's quite a surprising. I, I thought that was quite a surprising result because I have never seen a pie chart that had so many slices <laughs> in one of these BioGeoBears uh, reconstructions. I'm I'm just about to use a BioGeoBears thing. That's why I comment. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping mine doesn't look like such a mess. Bio-Geo- it sounds adorable. It does Bio-Geo sound adorable. <laughs> Okay. Or, or the nerdiest Care Bear. I don't know. <laughs> so what, we're going to go on from our, uh, what is it, Sipo? Sipo. Sipo. Okay, we're going to move on from our fascinating Sipo story to uh, oh, very, oh, yes. very controversial discussion. You guys ready? Yes. Oh, I'm ready. Yes. Ethan, you want to summarize it? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I don't. <laughs> Uh, Can I just say, uh, whatever we say about this, I'm extremely happy I know, about you're this. You're really thing. hyped, yeah. I am really hyped. <laughs> Gabriel is thrilled. I am less so. Lukewarm. I'm yeah. lukewarm on this particular. Yeah. The premise here is green iguanas are are more species. We're declaring them more species than we thought. Well, go wander. Something that lives from Mexico to Argentina. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying that those are not all iguana 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 yeah yeah they're not i think okay, it's a- you can you can summarize it and then we can give our opinions i'll, I'll summarize so the situation is i just discovered today <laughs> while i was looking through my uh, the the Google Scholar results. I I give in a long list of keywords while I'm looking for things that have happened in the last month. In addition to my notifications, and that keywords include like lizard and squamate and whatever. Anyway, one of the things that was highlighted was a preprint. The preprint is by uh, Bruel or Boyle or whatever et al. Published in BioArchive, and uh, the the title of the paper is a story of nasal horns, a new species of iguana, Laurenti 1768, Squamata iguanidae, in St. Lucia, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and Grenada, in the southern Lesser Antilles, and its implications, implica- Im- implications for the taxonomy of the Dennis iguana. Woo-hoo. So, uh, first thing I was like, um, excuse you, is this a taxonomic paper being published on a bioarchive? Uh, I have never seen a taxon uh, until today. I had never seen a taxonomic paper where a new species is described being put up on the bioarchive, and the reason for that is that it has consequences in the in the sense of the code. So, because the bioarchive does not count as publication because it does not have an ISSN, and in this particular case. The paper itself and the name that it contains, the new name that it contains, which we'll get to in a second, are not registered in ZooBank, or at least are not yet registered in ZooBank. Um, the paper is not valid. It or it is not maybe, considered published in maybe, the sense of the code. Maybe they have a Swiss ZooBank account. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> theoretically, right, as soon as the, um, you have to tell ZooBank that your thing is published for it to become publicly visible. So maybe they've registered it and they haven't shown it, but that anyway, doesn't if help. If you mention the name, does it still, because, uh, 
before it used to be that you should not publish the name anywhere, you know, even yeah. in the, not even in the abstract of your own right. paper. <laughs> so, because yeah, the reason for that was that early on you might have um, lists of abstracts published prior to the actual publication of the issue. That is no longer a problem because of the way that the, I mean, these these things are issued simultaneously, the abstract and the rest of the journal is published at the same time in general, and also because of the way that the Zoobank thing works. So the consequence of this is that the name that is erected here, which is Iguana Insularis, is currently not an available name. It is not a name that you can use for these species. It is now a nomen nudum. Which maybe because... is good because they shouldn't think about a better name. That's, <laughs> that's, that's my only, that's my only, how we, you know, you're going to name an iguana, an iguana after all this time, and that's all you come up with? Insularis, because it lives in an island. Really? I mean, come on. I, I mean, like it should one. at least be insularorum, or, right? Because it's plural, because uh, it's found on multiple islands. <laughs> no, I, I know, complete something more. We, we named a new gonatotis from an island in northern Venezuela, and we, were, we weren't going to name it, we, we weren't going to name it Insularis. We ended up naming it Naufrago, which means um, um, shipwrecked in Spanish. Oh, cool. Oh, that's good. So, yeah. so you know that that come up with something, people. Be a little bit more creative. <laughs> well, anyway, um, the what's important to know is that just because the name is a nomen nudum doesn't mean that it won't eventually become available. It just means that for now it's not an available name. That means that anybody who wanted to could write the most perfunctory description and publish it with a new name. And their name would become the 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 valid name. Oh, dibs! <laughs> yeah. So, exactly. what's really funny though is that if anybody else comes along and uses their name, the iguana insularis, in doing so, they basically make the name available. So they make their publication valid. So as soon as you cite this paper, more or less. Um, you can you can make the name Iguana Insularis valid even before it's really been properly published, which is kind of weird. But the the credit then still goes to these guys and not to you for making your new paper. So that's just a weird quirk of the code. That's bananas um, is what that is. It's bananas. It is bananas. Um, so the other thing that they do in this paper is they elevate um, iguana, iguana, iguana. <laughs> so they elevate subspecies iguana and sub subspecies rhinolopha to species level, which has been coming on for a long time. Yes. And um, yeah, my only criticism here is that they've published it as a, a preprint, which I personally would not have done because uh, certain bad actors are likely to come along and try for a steal of the name. If uh, those certain bad actors whose names will currently go unmentioned, we'll get to them on a different episode of the podcast, uh, haven't already named oh God, these particular glades. I haven't thought about that. Expect to see some iguana's name after somebody's dog or something. Um, you know what? I'm, I'm very, very, very happy about this paper. I cannot even tell you well, I have, you know, none of us has read it because it hasn't come up yet. It hasn't well, been published I mean, yet. Read I, the, I have access to the PDF. Oh, you did? The PDF is I there. Have... Yeah, oh, the whole paper I is there. Read the, I, just, I just read the abstract. 
Okay. Well, so I I can't read seen... the I can't read the PDF because it's double spaced and I refuse. <laughs> but I'm, um, I'm reading figure curious. one. Can I just point out figure one? Drawing by Provencher, 1890, of a stuffed iguana on Saint Lucia. Oh boy, this is really funny. <laughs> it's it's a is this an like excellent... a Durer's Rhino kind of a thing where it's like it a... is a really okay, really so, bad you know, illustration. I've been, I've been thinking about this subject for a long time, and for a while, um, I was talking to some of my uh, some colleagues of mine, and we were going to go and try to solve this issue until. You know, I was called into the attention that, you know, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare issue. Somebody, something <laughs> happened. <laughs> what happened? Oh, I yeah. just sent them the figure. Oh, yeah, that looks, <laughs> that, that looks about right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a beautiful 1890s illustration. Just be uh, be aware that at the same time, some of the best illustrations of all time were being produced. Right. Well, <laughs> this is not say, among them. <laughs> yeah, you're, you know Durer's rhino, right? Yeah, yeah. So he he reconstructed a rhino, and it's recognizable as a rhino. But you can tell this was not a firsthand illustration of a rhino. It has like metal plating and stuff. You know, I mean, like, and if he's working from a stuffed iguana, I mean, well, I mean, it looks a lot like an Indian rhino, (laughs) just wearing armor. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You okay. work with you work with what you got. You know. Yeah, I mean, this uh, looks loosely speaking a lot like an iguana. <laughs> it's just well, you know. So actually, I think it looks a little I bit was, like a like a night anole. Because I was going to thought about working on this for a long time. I was accumulating photos of iguanas from different localities, and I have a huge uh, library of photos from iguanas from all over the distribution. So mm. I, you know, I was already aware that these iguanas look very different in the Lesser Antilles. They have all these weird, uh, and actually, if I remember correctly, one of the reasons why iguana iguana rhinolofa was not considered a valid subspecies anymore for a long time was because they say, well, you know, other populations of iguana in other parts of the distribution also have horns in their snouts. One of the one of the ones that they were, you know, which was a stupid reason to say because just because other iguanas. Uh, right. right. Populations right. have horns doesn't mean, yeah, they have horns, but they don't look like those other populations in any other right, aspect. Right, so, right. Mm. Um, iguanas uh, from the Lesser Antilles are very different in, in coloration. Yeah. They have uh, all sorts of <coughs> different. Uh, and I, I'm, you read the PDF. Do they go into details in, of squamation and everything? Uh, like, they do def- definitely go into details of squamation. I have just realized, I have not read the PDF in detail. I've just sort of browsed it. Um, but I just realized that they've described two subspecies of their new species as well. Yeah. So I, there's the nominate form, and they've described a, a, a subspecies, uh, Sancta Luciae, which differs in being less stripy. All, all the differences, all this, everything they described are physical differences. There's no, no like, more stripy. More there's stripy. no behavioral differences between them or anything, right? I don't think anybody has gone into detail. No one's that. Left. Yeah. No, but but um, uh, what is important is that several years ago uh, there was this paper of, of molecular, and they were already showing that there were big divergent lineages of mm-hmm. within iguana iguana, including one that 
yeah, appeal to that Central American um, stuff that goes probably into Colombia and Western Venezuela west of the Andes. Now, the, the interesting thing that happens there is that Iguana rhinolofa, now that, by the way, that's what we have introduced in the United States. We don't have Iguana Iguana. We have Iguana rhinolofa. Is huh. this in large... Florida. Yeah. yeah. Is this large... The males get orange. Uh, they have orange uh, yeah. limbs and orange cheeks. They get like this uh, light dewlap. And the iguanas that are east of the Andes, which would be now Iguana Iguana in South America, are much darker. They don't get orange on the limbs. They get like vinaceous colors sometimes. They are grayer. They mm -hmm. have a wider head. Uh, they have... Um, they don't have horns. The other thing Rhinolofa has in Central America, most of... Rhinolofa has, uh, has uh, horns. However, in the southern part of the range, like what would be probably Panama, Colombia, and Venezuela, west of the Andes, I am not sure if that is still Rhinolofa. It looks more like Rhinolofa, but it doesn't have horns. Mm -hmm. and it would, it would be interesting for them to see if those... Uh, the iguanas what, that are sorry. in Florida, so you said they're Rhinolofa. Yeah. Uh, does that mean, that, does that mean then <laughs> that most of the pet trade iguanas are Rhinolofa? Yeah. Yeah, That's I haven't interesting. seen. I have not seen an iguana iguana in the pet trade or here anyway. That's anyway. interesting because yeah, There's because I've always from, the pet trade ones are orange. They've always been yeah, they're orange. always orange. Then and the big males. That's where you see how orange they get. The yeah, big males get yeah. bright orange. They get those orange spines, and the that never happens. If you guys, um, I had a I female could, growing up, and she, but she, even though she was a female, she it was seasonal. She yeah. would turn oranger. At different times of the year, yeah, which that orange color never occurs in the in the in iguana, Eastern, iguana. Huh. In iguana iguana. That they get vinaceous colors, like it's like a reddish, like vine wine color, but it never gets that bright orange that you know that yeah, rhinolofa yeah. gets. Yeah. And they don't have those horns. So, you know, rhinolofa can get like super, like three or four horns sometimes in the snout. Like it's 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 really big. Um, so I'm like, super excited with this paper because. I've been waiting for this forever, and the problem was that nobody wanted to deal with it because, of course, it's a nightmare just from the literature. Um, mm -hmm. Just reviewing literature in Iwana is a nightmare. And, and mm. I know that because I, I had to review <coughs> literature for Ameva, and it was never-ending. It was one of the papers that seriously burnt me. After I finished that and reviewing all that literature and going through all that, it was nightmarish. So I cannot even imagine... How yeah. it is for Iguana Iguana. And I don't know if they do that in the PDF. I would imagine they don't. So I'm sure that it's not as complete as I would like it to be. But um, I'm, I'm, I think it's really cool that at least we have a first step in clearing this problem. Because this also has consequences for... Um, Reintroduction programs. Uh, the 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 you know iguanas are are invading some islands. So which iguana species are invading what islands? And in what mm. islands are they uh, exotics? In what islands they are native? The populations of some South American populations are doing bad. Some other populations are doing very well. So it's very important that we know from a taxonomic point of view what species is which. And they're pretty good at that. Colonizing yeah. islands in general because they swim they are. because yeah. they I mean, swim in the ocean <clears throat> in my building. So I have a I have a pier next to my building. Right, we have in my building I have two species of iguana introduced. I have iguana rhinolofa and I have Tenosaurus similis. 
Yep. And mm-hmm. um, and so the Tenosaurus never go into the water, but the Iguanaguana go into the bay all the time, and yeah. they swim in the water in the in the salt water, yeah. and they huh. don't care. It's cool. like marine iguanas from the Galapagos. They don't. They're care. just waiting to. Yeah, they're just waiting to evolve into. You know. Yeah. So I, I, I'm sure that for iguanas. <laughs> well, that's how to, we got Fiji iguanas too, right? We had, exactly. Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not unheard of from them iguanas, and that's how we got iguanas in the Galapagos. Right. That's mm-hmm. how they got there. So uh, um, the also important part is that there is another well-known iguana species for a long time in the Caribbean, which is iguana delicatissima which has been well known for a long time and it lives in, in certain deli- islands. In delicatessens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, that one is easy to tell apart because it doesn't have that round, big round. Oh, the big pump, scale, right? The big scale yeah. that one has. Um, and that one may live in some islands in sympathy or with this new iguana species. So I would like to see more papers done about that. Yeah. It, well, it, it's certainly mentioned here, but not in not in a huge amount of detail. It, yeah, I was going to say it makes me think of like I wonder how quickly they are able to speciate in general, and what that you know what that would mean for iguanas living in places like Florida. You know, like what are they moving towards? What would what would their adaptations be like? Well, you know, they are they are large animals, and they're able to they're they are active. They're very active, yeah. so I'm sure they have. They're capable of invading and moving around and exchanging genes <coughs> faster than no, smaller, less right. active lizards. Um, I can tell you that in northern South America, the islands of the ABC Islands and the Venezuelan Antilles that are in the northern coast, they have animals that look like the mainland animals in some islands. But some others that differ. For example, like the iguanas from the um, some of the Venezuelan Antilles are black, completely black. Like mm. if you saw them, it's a large, but they're completely, completely black. So I never a, did I, some. It, yeah, I was gonna say, and they're not. It's not just a melanoid. Well, animals. you know, I never went into that deep. I know that the juveniles also look different, which is also a telltale sign that something might be happening. Mm-hmm. But uh, I never went into detail, into, you know, mm-hmm. to check what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, those islands have been separated from the continent always. They have never been part of the continent. So they're not part of the South American continental shelf. So they've never been part. So whenever you see that, you have to look more into detail because I know that from other lizards, like I describe a new species of uh, Nemidophorus, uh, so whiptail from there. Um, so you, and some gonatotes are new from there also. So you have when you see those patterns of speciation, you also have to look back because other things might also be endemic from yeah, those yeah. islands. So yes, this is a the Galapagos is calling, and this is an <laughs> awesome paper. And, uh, even though it's it, like Mark says, it's, it's wrong in the it's done in the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, the, so the, the PDF is 65 pages long. I think that they've probably done a relatively adequate job of summarizing the literature. There are, oh, I just seen that my colleagues are, are cited here. So uh, <laughs> they must have good taste. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's, it'll be really interesting to see it published. I, I'm, I would forestall any real judgment on the paper until we see that it's gone through peer review. Um, anybody feels like doing a pre-review a non like a non-peer review thing um that might be appreciated by the authors i don't know but 
it certainly looks um, very impressive. And yeah. And about cool. time. <laughs> yes, let's let's move on. Um, we've got a few more papers to go through. I've I've just cut the list down a tiny bit so that we don't have to hash yeah. on too many things. Yeah, we've but, maybe yeah. <clears throat> we have we have two more papers that are really important that we do need to talk about. Okay. Um, the first of, first of these is by Ram et al. Published in Nature Communications, it's entitled Divergent Trends in Functional and Phylogenetic Structure in Reptile Communities Across Africa. This is a really, really cool paper. Really cool paper. Because it's doing whole reptile community assays or studies across the entire continent of Africa. Which is a massive scale. Really huge scale. And the distribution of different sites that they've used is really quite impressive as well. So they've got a lot of sampling across the entire continent um, with, you know, there are obviously going to remain huge holes, especially in conflict zones and the middle of deserts and all of that stuff. But still, they've worked with the best data that's possibly available. And uh, in this in this paper... They have, um, they've tested a model that is used to try and explain the way that communities are formed across uh, environmental gradients. And the model is called a stress, the stress dominance hypothesis. So basically there's, there's, there are greater pressures on environments when there is no, when, when there is stress than when there is no stress. And so competition, especially competition, is more possible in environments where the, the environment itself is providing less stress. So if you can imagine, everybody is wanting to go to paradise, mm -hmm. but that makes exactly. paradise very full. And so you have uh, a lot of competition. Yeah, which is, which is the argument that if you have a rainforest, for example, where is, the life is easier, then you have a lot more competition and animals are quote-unquote, more stressed in those localities. Exactly. exactly. It's like Miami. All, well, I mean, they're, they're, more, <laughs> they're more stressed... Yeah, they're more stressed due to uh, uh, social or, or um, you know, interaction pressures, in Miami, but less but stressed... <laughs> well, stressier. Yeah. <laughs> they're less stressed by the environment itself. That's important. So you can have less competition in the middle of the fucking desert because it's just hard to live there. Yes. Right? Yes, that makes and, sense. Yeah. Right. So by definition, when you're living hunky dory and everyone's happy, there's gonna be more competition going on. Because so they have now used sorry, go on. Because everybody wants to live there. Yes, exactly. Or I don't I don't know if you want to put uh, um, <laughs> the desire into the yeah, question. No, it's, it's, it's just a so it's an funny. easier place to live. Yeah. And like by the environment itself. Anyway. So they have basically tested this hypothesis across all of Africa, comparing all of these different, all of mainland Africa, Madagascar is not included, um, using this, uh, yeah, so th they've used all of these different community assembly things. And uh, what's really cool is that they have built in phylogenies of the different um, groups that they're comparing, which is quite cool. That's um, what I found interesting about it. Yeah. So... 
the idea is basically uh, compare all of these different things and see what is the so each of the different um, communities, what is their functional uh, composition. So do you have, uh, I don't know, large constrictor snakes that are occupying one niche and you've got uh, day geckos or ter and terrestrial geckos, arboreal geckos, all of those different things. All of the, like the functional complexity of your ecosystem is determined by wh whether or not all of the so-called so holes are filled. Mm -hmm. Also the phylogenetic diversity across all of these different uh, communities and just raw species diversity as well. How many species do you have in all these different things? And um, to make a very, potentially a very long story, it's a super long paper actually, um, rather short, their conclusions are basically that the, um, the phylogenetic pattern across all of the, the climate zones in Africa or these different bio, um, biogeographic zones in Africa are shaped in a clade-specific way. That is to say, not every clade is following the same biogeographic history, which you might expect if, for example, all of the animals in Africa had been con <coughs> confined to the south and then had expanded outward, then you might see very strong parallelisms across all of these different clades that are, that are colonized basically all of Africa. That is not what's going on, which, you know, is totally to be expected. expected. But still, it's, it's nice to be confirmed like that. Um, but what they do find is that the functional structure of these communities, that is to say, the, um, the, the different functional groups that you have in every community does match the predictions of the stress dominance hypothesis. So whether or not you have um, environment, so if there's more environmental stress, you have uh, more um, skewed functional structure of your community than if you have the um, less environmental stress and you have more direct competition among individuals. So it's it's a, a fairly elegant demonstration of or, or testing of this hypothesis. It's really cool. Yeah, and for biogeographic, uh, in, the biogeo biogeographic implications are really cool. I mean, I, I think that that was that is helpful to everybody working yeah. with biogeography in reptiles. So exactly, a really cool paper. Yeah. I think it's it's really nice also to take this not it's not just for a single group. So like for example, the idea of the stress dominance hypothesis has also been tested before in snakes. But now we're taking it not just at a snake level but at the whole community level for yeah. all of the reptiles. That's super cool. Next step, doing it at a, an even bigger scale, looking across all of the I mean, the, the full functional diversity of the ecosystem. You know, this is sort of... There's actually been a lot of progress recently, especially in, uh, in the journal PNAS. There was a recent paper that was like doing whole community, whole genome sequencing or something, which is crazy. And then they were looking at like, you can characterize the community's functional diversity by sequencing it and really cool stuff. Um, but this sort of um, functional community stuff is a really good way of thinking also about hypothetical evolutionary scenarios 
into the past as well. If we can start thinking about, okay, wh what sort of environment, for example, during uh, extreme volcanism in the um, whatever it was called period. I can't remember. <laughs> uh, I'm so bad at... The Permian, you mean? <laughs> yes. Right. Right. You're going to make a vein uh, pop out of Gabriel. <laughs> 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 um yeah so all of all of the stressful periods you might expect different um skewed communities that would evolve in line with this sort of the, pattern the devonian so. or something i don't know yeah <laughs> okay i've been trying i've been trying to learn all these stupid periods but everything is going extinct all the time it's very difficult <laughs> Okay, our last paper of the section, of the Woo! section, the last paper. The longest breaking news well, ever. Th theoretically, there should be two different papers, but we're not going to talk. Well, yeah, okay. But the, right. the so, most interesting one. <laughs> yeah, the, the most interesting one. Do you want to talk about this one, Gabriel? <laughs> I'm well, fed up. <laughs> uh, I mean, let's just do it a quickly thing. It's, it's a cool paper by uh, Milian Garcia et al. in PJ. And um, it's about genetic evidence supports a distinct lineage of, um, of American crocodile, Crocodilus acutus, in the Greater Antilles. I think it's in Hispaniola. One of them is in Hispaniola in Cuba, right? If I'm I don't remember correctly, but I think some of it is. And uh, so, it's, but there's already, isn't there already a Cuban crocodile yes, species? Yes, that's one of the things that they found. So they found that there is two lineages within what we thought was the same species uh, the, of the American crocodile. Yeah. One of these lineages is more closely related to um, the Cuban crocodile, which is Crocodilus, uh, I want to say, I forgot, Rombifer or, or more... Rombifer. Rombifer, yeah. And, and the other one is more closely related, the mainland one of the American crocodile is more closely related to the Orinoco crocodile, which is Crocodilus intermedius, which lives in the Llanos of Colombia and Venezuela. So um, that was surprising for many of us, but not for Darren <laughs> Who has been saying this for four years. Since 2014. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that sounds right, yeah. Yes. Yeah. What's really funny is that this... Uh, the, the, Darren started saying this. To be clear, Darren Nash of the Tetrapod Zoology Podcast, mm -hmm. who we are a small mockery of. Um, and we have big fans <laughs> Darren, <laughs> uh, Darren basically read a paper that these same authors published four years ago and was like, huh, I think that we'll see in future that there, that there is some, some systematic confusion that requires taxonomic attention in this particular area of the uh, of the greater antilles and now they've published a paper that's like huh we seem to find a pattern that requires taxonomic readjustment <laughs> in the crocodiles of the greater antilles it's really funny it's almost word for word actually between what he wrote in his blog there'll be a link on our website to the yes, to the original and, post and that he I'm, wrote yeah. i'm gonna say that the 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 new or this they don't name they don't name this new lineage as a new species in this paper although they right. they do clearly show that it it certainly is because it's not you know it's not closely they're not closely related. exactly uh, yeah. but yeah. it is from they Cuba. want to leave it so that it can be named after someone's dog it's, <laughs> it's only fair <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it is from Cuba. It's from Cuba. It's from the southern 
coast of Norn, no, northwestern Cuba. So um, I, I yeah. vote. I that vote, was really uh, clear directions. Cro- <laughs> it comes from the southern coast of coast yeah. of northwestern. It's the only thing it's not is east. Just <laughs> be very clear. It's not it's, from it eastern from, Cuba. Uh, uh, the Zapata Swamp and uh, the Birama. <clears throat> no, I'm lying. From the yeah, Zapata Swamp and the Birama Swamp, and apparently in the Zapata Swamp, at least it is um, uh, Saint Patrick with uh, Crocodilus rumbifer, which is the Cuban crocodile that, as you know, is a smaller species of crocodile, which is well known for being jumpers. They jump out of the, you know, it's a the water. It's a smaller, angrier crocodile. I did crocodile. know that. Yeah. <laughs> I, was pre- I was just about to prepare to be very sarcastic and be like, oh, yes, everybody knows exactly. <laughs> but I did, in fact, know that they're jumpy crocodiles. <laughs> Yeah, because they, they, they eat this, um, well, that's the excuse. I don't think that's what they eat the most, but the reason why they say that they jump, which I don't believe, is because they supposedly prey on hutias, which are these arboreal, big arboreal rodents in um, Cuba. But I don't, I don't really buy that completely. I know that they, yeah, they do eat prey on hutias sometimes, but I don't think that's the bulk of their diet to justify that that's what they, you know. They're just more aerodynamic. Jump. <laughs> yes. Mm. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a smaller it's, species. But now what if I you're going to get a flying crocodile, you have to start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> now what I want to know is, you know, Rombifer is a very distinctive crocodile. And now what I want to know is what the morphological, you know, I want to see a morphological studies of this, a study of this new species and see how it differs from the other because it must be very different i mean they are they are i mean acutus acutus is a very distinctive crocodile all the crocodiles that we have here in the new world are fairly distinctive so it, you know it's it would be very interesting to see what what they look yep. like i have no clue what they look yeah. like crocodilus tetsuai <laughs> you heard <laughs> it first naishi yeah naishi yeah naishi yeah exactly okay uh, we're going to introduce a slightly new section of the show because, all right. So because it wasn't long the, enough. <laughs> yes, yeah, the show wasn't yeah, long enough today. We're so. not long enough. We, we've been recording for an hour and 43 minutes, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that's weak. Okay. That's poor effort so far. So yeah. we're going to, we're going to just introduce very quickly. This is going to be a really, really quick section where I'm just going to list some cool new species that have been published since the last episode. And he'll be doing it in the you form ready? of a song. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, very, very, very quickly, there have been a few different things that were very cool. Uh, we published the new chameleon. I mentioned that already. Kaluma Rualuku means two-colored chameleon. It's very Which small. Looks uh, it's really about, nice. Yeah, it's about three inches long. It's very small chameleon. Um, <clears throat> it's it's Ooh. about twelve centimeters long for people who use sensible standards. <laughs> Did you know? Did you know that the Americans sitting on the International Space Station use imperial units? And everybody else has to carry around some kind of converter because they're using the stupidest (laughs) units in the world. That's terrible. Yeah, I'm really against imperial units. I, I, look, I, heard, I, I was raised that way. I can't help it, all right? I, it, uh, <laughs> yes. You have to break away from the Imperium. I know, I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying. <laughs> um, yeah, that that shocked me. I, I learned that from Hank Green on Twitter. Um, 
Anyway, okay, so, Kolomoruluku. Uh, There's a new species of Taika Zuan called Popaenze. It was described from Myanmar. Which, by the way, um, those are the flying geckos. Yes. Those are flying yes. geckos. They're really fucking cool. We'll have Much to talk like about that in a future it's a, episode. It's a, exactly. <laughs> If you can imagine a much, much smaller, much more flyy version of the jumpy crocodile. No, um, that's Zoon exactly is one of my favorites. It. Yeah, they're awesome. Perfect. Yeah. And there's a new species of Micrurus on the block. It's called Micrurus boycora. It's from Brazil. Uh, it was published in Salamandra. There is a new species of Messy Stops or Mechi Stops or Mechi <coughs> Stops. Messy Stops Leptorhynchus. Which is, uh, well, it's not new species. This is, this is the story. Right, so I've forgotten what Messi Stops is. <laughs> this is the story that made the news. Big news. New species of crocodile. Amazing. It's been 84 <clears throat> years since someone last described a new species of crocodile. So no one has named a new species of crocodile in 84 years. And now they've done it. Only they haven't. <laughs> They've resurrected a name that Cope established in 1920, 20, wow. 1924. Which was crazy when we do have a paper that came out about the same time where there is a new lineage of name lineage. So it turns out the media is extremely bad at reporting things that have anything to do with taxonomy. This yeah. is a topic that we'll discuss in our next episode where we've already decided that the central topic is going to be taxonomy because yes. it needs to be talked about. I thought you were going to say fashion newts. Well, it's... This was fake newts, would be real newts. What would be fake newts? Pseudotriton. So, hey, <laughs> perfect. It's true. Pseudotriton. <laughs> fake newts. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> right. So this this paper made all kinds of news. It was in National Geographic. It was all over the place. It is a lie. <laughs> Mesostops leptorhynchus is an old name. It's not a new species. We've known about it for a really long time. And the media just is really, really bad at, at identifying new species. Like when we described the new species of gecko leapers, these fish scale, fish scale geckos from Madagascar, they were like, holy <laughs> shit, you discovered these new geckos. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. And we're like, no, it's Can almost I just exactly say, the yeah. same as the other geckos that we've known about for 200 years. Mark, I was going to say, and I didn't know you that well at first when that happened. And I was like, my reaction as someone who has seen them in the hobby was like, that. That's that's not a big news. That's a fish scale gecko. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was not. I mean, it was really cool that the media took it so seriously, but they, they did, oughtn't yeah. to have. <laughs> so. they, they see, it seems like that happens a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, and finally, there have been at least seven new frog species. Well, seven new amphibian species described since the last episode, including a new Tylototriton. Yeah, but, that's which, another one. They're just splitting that one up. Right. That's enough. I have I have exactly. uh, uh, varicosis, and that was that used to be. Uh, I'm going to get the name wrong now, but yeah. Anyway, that's another one that keeps getting split up. Yeah, I uh, I don't really want to touch it. Usually, the things that are assimilated by I, I get all this stuff from Amphibia Web because I yeah. do not like the amphibian species of the well, world database. I was going to say too. Um, that's another one where every time they split it, they go, "Oh my god, it's a new newt that looks like a Klingon or something." And it's like, yeah, yeah, they, yeah it's, it, it's they've they're, they've been around. <laughs> they do look a lot like a Klingon. Kapla. Okay. 
it's time to move on to the hashtag Herper's talk. And our choice for the Herper of this episode is a little controversial. She's, but she's so, kind of a badass, though. She's a bit of, she's, yes. Y- yeah. Mixed. <laughs> I feel like, yes, she is a badass. Absolutely a badass. And impressive. Yeah. Especially for the time period. Yeah. Which we'll explain in a second. But, uh, to make it clear, the stance of our podcast <laughs> is not to condone these practices. Free handling of venomous snakes. Do not free handle <clears throat> venomous snakes. It's a bad, it's a bad, yeah. It is just a bad idea. The number of people I see on Instagram who are playing around with baby cobras. Like they've got six baby cobras in their hand. That is astonishingly stupid. I used to go down to the show in Pennsylvania and there's like, you know, no laws about hots there. And you could walk up to a whole table and it's just lots of little rattles, you know. Jesus. People walking around uh, with them. That stresses me out a lot. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Okay, so, <laughs> so uh, the lady said, of yeah. the <laughs> the lady that we're going to be talking about. Her name is Grace Olive Wiley. Uh, she was born in 1883. She's uh, from the states. Um, originally from Kansas, where so many herpetologists seem to have either originated or been educated. But in fact, um, she was never really much of a herpetologist in the strictest sense of the word. Like she never really published anything or much anyway on um, on herpetology. But that being said, first of all, she described a species of water strider. Hmm. So that's cool. And um, secondly... She was the very first person in the world, at least apparently, um, to breed rattlesnakes in captivity, hmm. which is an accolade, um, do you know certainly. Which, do you know which rattlesnake? I do not know which rattlesnake. That's a good question. Um, there was a newspaper article published in 1934 that's called Deadly Snakes Are Just Pets to This Woman, published in the <laughs> Chicago Daily Tribune. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have direct right, access right. to 1934 issues of <laughs> <laughs> the Chicago uh, Tribune. But yes, anyway. But, yeah, okay. So this um, Grace led an eventful life, let's say. Her Wikipedia page is fascinating. So she became the curator of the Minneapolis Public Library's former Natural History Museum. So this was back in the time when public libraries were so popular that they were able to have entire museums within them. Um, Oh, that's depressing. And, yeah, (laughs) things have changed since then. Um, She became rather famous for the fact that she practiced some very dangerous handling techniques. She was convinced that she could, and and succeeded by all accounts uh, un- until the end, in handling extremely dangerous animals without uh, without real danger. So she without, was handling free without a, without a free, snake hook, no snake hook, without no, hooks, yeah. without 
Clasperers without anything. She was handling uh, mambas and yeah. cobras and yeah, that's a works uh, until it doesn't kind of a situation. Exactly, yeah. it, it it is. And um, for those of you familiar with literary devices, this is what we call foreshadowing. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, the public library became a little bit uncomfortable with her um, methods and especially her job uh, safety. And so they fired her or they didn't fire her, but they pressured her to leave that job. Um, Fair enough. It's a public library, right? Um, <laughs> and I'm then, just imagining that, like, the public library, you know, uh, having a sign that says, yeah. you know, now with fewer mambas. Like, yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's crazy to think about that time, too. It's, it's long I mean, that's, ago, so, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. seriously impressed at, at, at that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the, the turn of the century, right? This is the 1900s that she was doing all this stuff. And uh, and she was handling, it says on her page, uh, her Wikipedia page, she was handling rattlesnakes, cobras, copperheads, and mambas with her bare hands. And I'm going to say, like, okay, <clears throat> rattlesnakes, okay, copperheads, okay. Not an easy, not an easy feat, but okay. Yeah. But mambas, I mean, from all <laughs> snakes to handle mambas, it's yeah. like... Yeah, uh, I mean, would, uh, yeah, <laughs> would not recommend... No, and <laughs> I don't see how in that her works. defense, in her defense, as as we'll come to in a bit, it seems that she wasn't completely like, un, she wasn't in complete denial that she could get bitten. Yeah, it was just that she didn't think that she would. So we'll get to that. Um, so she was pressured out of her position working in this in the public library, and moved to become the curator of reptiles at Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. Now, what's quite funny is that she took all of the animals with her. So <laughs> suddenly the, the zoo was endowed by an additional 236 reptiles and amphibians Whoa. that she brought with her. It's um, a good score then, for a zoo. I mean, you know. That's oh, it's a great score for a zoo. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, she also lost her job there because she let a few too many snakes escape. Oh. A few too many being 19 and um well but out of out of how many oh yeah yeah true i Two, mean you know it's not a large fraction and, and, but one like, mamba is a problem escape artists they, they they are they, you know you are bound to have a snake escape if you have, if you keep snakes yeah. you're bound to have one oh yeah it's, 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 happen. it's definitely it will happen yeah 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 so um her zoo job being more or less uh, well, her zoo job under the administration of other people uh, being more or less over, she then moved to California, where she took up a job in Hollywood and was the consultant on major Hollywood films such as The Moon Over Burma, The Jungle Book, and the Tarzan series, yeah. which is cool. So some that's of you, Tarzan if you in black are, and white, right? The one with Jolly that's the Tarzan Bruce in black Miller, and white, exactly. Miller, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, so she was actually the the reptile consultant and snake trainer for those. I, I think it's so ironic to call it a snake trainer, but sure. Um, for for those movies, which is really cool. And at the same time, she set up her own zoo, 
where people, well, I mean, calling it a zoo is perhaps a bit of a stretch, but she was charging 25 cents for people to come in and have a look at her personal collection. I should do that. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, she reminds me a little bit to this guy that we had here in Miami. Bill Haas, that had the Miami oh, yeah. Serpentarium for a long time. Yeah. Kind of the same attitude to things, you know? Yeah, mm. yeah that's, that famous. is very, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the same attitude. There, yeah. you, know, it's, you know, what's funny is that you're right. There are a ton of modern day Herper hobbyist types like her, that she, you put her in the lineup with them and – I mean, not yep. to not to take away from her accomplishments because she that's amazing. Right. But what I'm saying is, is like I think that has lived on. Like that's yes. you know, there's absolutely yeah. yeah, that's still ongoing. Yeah. The impressive thing is, of course, the era, and you know, doing this yeah. doing this in the 1900s, 1920s, um, you know, all the way through 1935. It was when she lost her job at the zoo in Chicago and then moved to California. That, yeah. That's such an important period in the transition in the, you know, um, suffrage in the United States and all that stuff. Um, and getting, you know, those, those are pretty important positions to be occupying um, for for a woman in that at that time. So I think that's um, I think that's and very this is, impressive. It's really crazy what I'm going to say, but I just can't help but imagining because everything, you know, I have a graphic mind and all i can think about is people wearing <laughs> white gloves dancing like this like in the old cartoons <laughs> they yes. dance with the white gloves <laughs> like in the mickey mouse 1900 cartoons so yeah, all i can think yeah. about is her handling snakes with the white gloves no i don't think so <laughs> yeah. i don't think she i don't think she used any kind of no yeah. not even no she was probably one of the people who um who was really bare handling no gloves at all which yeah, and so uh, unlike unlike many stories that could end uh, or that could end this way and don't, hers actually does. Um, in the end, she was in fact killed by one of her snakes. So she was handling an Indian cobra um, in front of a man from the media, and he took a photo with a flash. The cobra was uh, shocked and lashed out and bit her. She was taken to the hospital, but unfortunately the hospital had no uh, polyvalent um, anti-venom serums or any kind of serums, in fact, for non-American snakes. And her own vial, so she did in fact keep her own stash, but the one vial that she had that would have worked on a cobra... Broke. broke oh and so she died of yeah uh, yeah of being How killed old by the snake she died uh she was 64 i think yeah uh yeah 65 65 she would have been that's an impressive life though i mean especially for it's, a woman it at is an time, impressive knife yeah the whole thing is very interesting yeah I think it's, you know, it's interesting also to talk about the non-academic aspect of this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's important in general when we highlight the academic side, like we've highlighted uh, the, you know, the, the previous um, women who were also active and alive around this, this same time. Yeah. Um, but in this case, 
it's interesting to see someone who is being so progressive in a in a more private sector. You know, we're yeah. we're not talking about the the science stuff. Well, we're talking about someone who's working in a zoo and working well, in. How about just the, the breeding of? I was going to say the, uh, the breeding of the rattlesnakes right. thing. You know, like that's. I think we 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 miss the fact a lot of times that a lot of the advances that are made in conservation and breeding happen with with hobbyists and have happened with hobbyists for a long time. In a, yeah. Within reptiles and amphibians, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's been a that's been a pattern for a long time, and and you still see that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Especially if you look right now, uh, earless monitors. Yep, Lanthanotus. That the number of people in Germany who have already started breeding them with huge success is shocking. Yeah, because we would have thought four years ago that it would never happen. Yep. I had no notion that an earless monitor would even make it into Germany, let alone people be breeding them in, in you know, in very big ways. So in, in it's, an era uh, where we are losing so many species, where you know, captive breeding programs are so important, I think this is something we should definitely, you know, keep it. I mean, I I, I keep a number of newts that I have primarily because I'm worried that that there aren't going to be enough of them to, to work with. (laughs) So I have, you know, I have, uh, uh, one of the ones I'm working with right now is, uh, Neurojurus crocatus at Lake Ermia spotted newts, and they're not easy to come by. And I've, I'm on the second round of breeding right now. And I just Mm. traded with, I found another guy in this, you know, actually not too far from me, turns out who was keeping them as well. And we traded, offspring just at this last show so that's good what's the what's the genus called uh uh neuro it's the same as the kaiser newts oh yeah kaisery yeah i have those two but crocatus are the old they're all spotted oh i see okay because kaisery we see quite often in germany i've never seen the crocatus species well and that's another thing is that because of the ban on importation there are right. there are hobbyists over in Europe who are doing this, but I have no way to talk to them or right. you know, to, to right. trade with them. So, well, you know, I can think of a lot of species that would benefit from having this, you know, good captive bred because they are disappearing in nature, and we have to have some sort right. of, you know, backup for right. that. Right, right, and it's not yeah. and it's not something that necessarily that zoos by themselves are going to be able to do. And or can actually, they, or they can just don't do. care? Yeah. Can they, 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 yeah. there's simply not space or or human resources enough right. to? So I don't do mean to Zeus, I don't mean to derail it, but that was the first thing I thought of when you said that she was the first person to breed rattlesnakes. Would she would she be considered one of the? I think she has. She has to be considered one of the first uh, herpetoculturist. Yeah, that's in the that, U.S. That's that's I would imagine must be. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that that kind of practices went back went that far back though. I, I thought that that was a more recent thing. Yeah, me too. I mean, especially, um, uh, yeah, especially among women. Yeah, I mean, you're describing what you're describing so her sounds like someone you could see today. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it, no, for sure. Uh, I mean, she might have more problems with her with her methods and <laughs> keeping a job. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna say something Even that people are not gonna like because I know that you know a lot of you like Steve Irwin, but it's it's kind of a Steve Irwinish 
kind of vibe that she had. You know, that thing of, of handling in a, uh, animals in a unorthodox way. <laughs> well, but I think also like Steve Irwin, you got to take the good with the bad there. I yeah, mean, yeah. You, right. you, he definitely contributed. You can't say that he didn't. Yeah. But no, I, you know, but I mean, yeah, I'm and not he a fan had, of the but he, he he brought up reptiles into the general audiences, and that's right, invaluable. Right. And so. and he, like her, I'm sure they both had enormous respect for the animals that they were working with, yeah. and knew how to judge their behavior. I think that's something that's really key is right. understanding the way that the animal is behaving. Right, and that's on the a, other yeah, hand, yeah. Steve Irwin very rarely handled super deadly animals without tools yeah that's so, true right 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 i mean this this is someone who is like getting a mamba out of its cage without a hook which i can't even imagine i don't know how that works i don't even know how that like, works yeah, yeah. i mean a mamba will come out of its fast. cage whether you want yeah. it to or not I, I, <laughs> yeah and i wonder i wonder how I, I i would kill to see you know like like footage of her working with those animals yeah, because it would be I, really cool because i would it's got to be something special i mean it could you would have to have some kind of tamed relationship with some of those animals for that to even work yeah right i, I would imagine so for sure i mean you, you, i don't think it would really be possible without it i look i've seen people do that with cobras for sure i've seen i've i've seen footage of people who have relationships with tame cobras, uh, you know, like petting and stroking the cobra. And, you know, I, I wouldn't ever do that, but I, I know that that's something but, that can be done, but a mama but is, yeah, exactly. That's a yeah. difference. I'm okay. Uh, you know, cause you say rattlesnakes, rattlesnakes are, are notorious for being mild tempered generally. Copperheads uh, too. Copperheads, or, yeah. Yeah, okay. Whatever. But you know, <laughs> when you get into mambas, I don't understand how that works because yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. yeah. So our, our yeah. hats, We're our hats recommend. are collectively off to her. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Okay, it's time for the main discussion. Today, we're going to talk about sea snakes. So, the reason reason we're going to talk about sea snakes is (laughs) because you guys, the people from Twitter, voted in a poll where we posted, what would you like us to talk about? You had beautiful options. You could have had us talk about iguanas, iguanids. You could have had us talk about gymnophthalmids, which honestly, I think we've talked enough about. No, no, <laughs> There's so or, much more to talk about gymnophthalmids. You have no idea. Or we could have been talking about pipids or pipoids. Yeah, and by the no. way, I just took a photograph of a of the ass of a pipit frog yesterday that I was going to use for the episode, but now I can't because you guys wanted to talk about sea snakes, which, uh, so, which you guys are the worst. None of us which know, it turns out, yeah, turns out we know jack shit about <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so sorry in advance. <laughs> um, right, we should sea but, snakes. But we, we, yeah, we had to admit that up front. I mean, yeah, you know. yeah. And by the yeah. way, it's, it's so, Mark's fault. So, right? It's, it's my fault. It's my fault. Yeah. <clears throat> so, somehow I had got it in my head. I think I'd seen this relatively new paper on sea snakes. Slash, I still had in my head Emma Sherritt's talk from the Evolution Congress in Montpellier about sea snakes. And, well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, first of all, 
we're going to give you a very brief introduction to sea snakes. What is a sea snake and how many are there? I imagine so, it's a snake in the sea. Yes. Well, basically, if you can't see it, it's not. A- <laughs> no. Oh, <God. laughs> no. No, no, um, no. No. Yeah, and so, they're also so, not the sea serpents from the mythic, the you know, the no. myths and stories. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. they don't they don't no. undulate. So, you know. Yeah. Well, they do sort of undulate. Although oh, my father did send me but recently not, a ribbon eel and was like, "What kind of snake is this?" <laughs> like, it's it says in the description of the thing that it's an eel. <laughs> it's an eel. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> sorry about that, father. Now, um. First of all, how many snakes have gone into the aquatic niche, you might ask yourself. And of those, which ones are really sea snakes, sensu stricto? By aquatic, you mean marine or just... Uh, No, I mean in this case aquatic. I mean in this case aquatic. Okay. So, right, definitions, definitions. Aquatic means living in or at least partially living in the water. Marine refers to living in salt water right. and so would you, uh, so so you would count anacondas as an aquatic snake anacondas exactly yeah. anacondas are aquatic snakes several of the um, colubrids mm, also yeah exactly there are the lots water, of the water different snakes yeah water yeah. snakes water moccasins all of those natricine natricine yes exactly. Exactly. Thermophis might even be considered to be an yeah. aquatic snake. Since because they cannot it lives. move the, the hot springs exactly. because they will freeze, they, they, yeah. they have to be aquatic, <laughs> whether they like it or not. Exactly. Get in exactly. the water. So, so in 2012, uh, Murphy, I think Jonathan Murphy is his name, can't remember. Anyway, 2012, Murphy published a review of all of the uh, uh, aquatic snakes. I think he used the term marine. Let me just pull up the paper quickly. Uh, where is it? Well, that Here. could be like marine reptile. Yeah. In, in so the, he, you know, paleo well, sense where we, we don't really know if they were. The paper title was Marine Invasions by Non-Sea Snakes with Thoughts on Terrestrial Aquatic Marine Transitions. Mm-hmm. Um so the idea basically being that you you must preface transfer or many things preface transfer into the sea by first transferring into water and then going bra- gradually more and more brackish to become more and more marine. Yeah. And uh, according to his list, there were at the time in 2012 roughly 362 aquatic snakes, which seems to me an extremely high number. Uh, of which roughly 70 are marine, or at least use the marine niche. Mm-hmm. So 70 is not so surprising because 62 species, or I think now it's 64, I can't remember, um, belong to a tribe of what are called the true sea snakes, um, which are the elapid hydrophene hydrophene sea snakes. Which so are family, also called the family the vivid- elapids, which is the uh, same as coral snakes and cobras, and, exactly. And uh, the the subfamily is Hydrophinae, and yes. the tribe is Hydrophinae. Yes. So exactly. Safe to say, these are all really venomous 
snakes. These are hyper-venomous, all viviparous sea snakes. Except for Which is one, important. One, right? Well, Laticella right, is not part so. of that. Oh, it's not part uh, of that tribe. Okay. Is oh, it? right. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, not... Well, it's a bit. There's a. It's a bit weird. We'll get to that in a second. So, <laughs> so most of them give live birth at sea. Exactly. Well, yeah. And what's quite interesting is that all of the most aquatic snakes, which is to say, all of the or, or almost all of the hydrophiini, and also the acrocordids, which is something that you also could have had us talk about at one time, but then didn't. Um, <laughs> he said bitterly. <laughs> yeah, the, the acrocordids also give birth to live young. Huh. So there's this notion that the more aquatic you become, the stronger the emphasis on evolving yeah, how's that live work, How's that working out for sea turtles? Well, yeah, that's exactly. the thing. Sea turtles, are, sea turtles seems to be uh, 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 an outlier because right. other marine reptile groups have all evolved. Ichthyosaurs. As as and, Ichthyosaurs yeah. have become, have become viviparous. Uh, plesiosaurs, nothosaurs, a bunch of other groups. Yeah. So yeah. Um, sea turtles seem to, and even even within archosaurs, um, right. um, marine reptiles, meteorinkids, the, those are the ones that had like a fluke yep. in the tail and everything. They seem to, they probably were viviparous. So, so we don't know exactly right. that. So we don't know why tur- sea turtles are weirdos. Is, is, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we also know that marine birds, not to bring up non-avian um, um, reptiles, but marine birds are incapable of becoming aquatic, uh, 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 live-bearing as well. But I think in the case reason. of turtles, it might have to do something with the, with the shell, right? I mean, it's not easy to be viviparous if you have a shell that has to yeah, go through there. That's true. Yeah, but you eventually have to get rid of the shell. So many things are oviviparous. So they're developing eggs inside their bodies. Then the egg membrane is yeah. basically oh, yeah. dissolved inside the body, and they are given birth to as live right. young, even though they've been inside an egg. Well, Theoretically, but, that should but be that's possible what I mean. inside the If you're, if you're the giving birth to a shell, it must not be pleasant. That's what I mean. <laughs> it, yeah, it reminds me of like you know, like hedgehogs, the way they're born without the the uh, not a shell, but they're born without the quills, essentially. Yeah, and then they come in later. So and, you and could, I think if you're a turtle, I, I guess sea like, turtle eggshells are soft. Yeah. What? No, I was thinking, we're talking shell shell, like the shell of no, the turtle. No, I'm talking about the carapace. Oh, I the see, carapace. the carapace. The carapace, yeah. yeah. But, but oh. so there, you, there are other things that, like the um, sawtooth, sawtooth um, oh, yeah. sharks, they yeah. are born with like a layer of mucus around yeah. the teeth mm. from the sawtooth so they can go through. Right. Because it's not easy to go, <laughs> as you can imagine, it's not easy to give birth well, to these structures. You'd almost have to, yeah, you'd have to have, like, if we were speculating, you'd have to be born with, like, while the shell was pliable basically or, yeah exactly you know which is nothing is going to happen because shell just just because of the way the structure of the shell it, it it's you know ribs and you know it's, it's i don't think that works that way so <laughs> well be a, yeah. you'd have a neotenous turtle you'd have a, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> it would be unpleasant especially in the numbers that turtles have <laughs> offspring that's true, true. I mean, right. it's it's not just one or two, but it's sixty. We've gone and way <laughs> into the turtle grass, you know. Okay, true. okay, we'll get out of the turtle grass, <laughs> and we're back to snakes. So, um, this paper by Murphy is a little bit controversial because of the way that it uses the definition of being marine and aquatic and things. Very loose. 
Um, so there's been a new paper that was in fact published just um, last week or a week and a bit ago, um, which is perfect. So this actually fits. Really, this is a good good thing that you guys chose for us to talk about sea snakes. It's just we apologize that we don't know enough about sea snakes. Anyway, so there's this new paper, which was the first author's name is Udi Yawer. Uh, it was published in Frontiers in Marine Science. And uh, it basically, so the, the title of the paper is Future Directions in the Research and Management of Marine Snakes. So it does not, um, it's not focusing exclusively on any particular clade of these snakes, but rather talking about marine snakes as a whole. And they give a rather restrictive definition of what they consider to be marine snakes. They say Asian water snakes of the family Homolopsidae, mm -hmm. file snakes that are the acrocordids, the amphibious sea crates, which are uh, the latic laticauda or laticorda. What, what Ethan was talking about. The, the egg layer. Exactly. Yeah. And the completely marine true sea snakes within the Elapidae. And then they list two genera. They list Apis, Apis, Urus, Apis Urus and Hydrophis. But what's weird is that they do not mention the other four genera that are included within the, sub, within the tribe uh, Hydrophiini, which uh, I don't have here at this exact moment. But so there are also... Hydrolaps, parahydrophus, ephalophus, emidocephalus between Apis urus and hydrophus. So maybe well, they were trying to define the clade in sort of a phylocode sort of way. But it's weird that they only mentioned those two. Acalyptophus is also not mentioned. I don't know where acalyptophus sits on the tree. Is that, is, uh, is that one that it's so bumpy and horny and like it has like a yeah. bunch of horny projections? Yeah, I know what it. I, it's I know not the horny. One. It has horny projections. <laughs> I should have said that correctly. The snake is not horny. It has horny projections. <laughs> it has like. That's what it's called. Uh -huh. That's what it's called. Horned. Oh, that's it's, why you're so um, excited about those iguanas. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's considered a synonym of hydrophus. Oh, okay. So they synonymize it. Yeah. My, yeah. Uh, so it, it's I'm in there. I'm a little behind in the, in the taxonomy <laughs> of the group. Exactly. Um, sitting in in the past. So this paper is um, it's quite interesting. It's a good literature review that at the same time contains the contains the results of um, of interviews essentially with twenty of the um, what is the term they use the um, twenty experts on uh on marine snakes and basically all of their different opinions of what should so so what research has been done on any particular question and then what should be done next so it's um it's it's an interesting approach to doing a literature review it really takes the work out for the authors which is quite <laughs> cool um, but yeah so it's it's an interesting paper. It puts emphasis on the idea that these snakes are under-researched, which is true, but not as true as they seem to think. Because there's if you read the paper... Yeah, there's definitely other snakes that are... Yeah. There is a yeah. vast amount of literature on these snakes. Yeah. Like, just the, the fact that they've been researched for their, for their venoms alone, 
yeah, um, exactly. in such intense detail. Well, and they're, yeah. I mean, and they're weirdo. They're not that under They're odd for snakes, so they get some attention for being... Exactly. You know, yeah, plus, plus there are species that are so... Uh, you know, wildly known that have had a. I have. I'm sure there is a ton of literature just in those species, like Pelamis right. platurus, for example, the, the right. yellow exactly. belly sea snake. That exactly. is, you know. Yeah. But why don't we give people like a like a small uh, like quick overview of what a sea snake is and how they look like and what they look like? Because there are certain characteristics. <clears throat> so you're talking only about the Hydrophiini. Yeah. Right. So Hydrophiini. Uh, first of all, they have fangs. The fangs are not necessarily super short, as people have often contended, nor are they located at the back of the mouth. Um, they are hyper-venomous, at least the, the members of this particular clade are, um, with a venom that is apparently specialized largely for feeding on fish. And um, they typically have rudder-like flattened tails. So. And there is a particular clade of them um, that yeah. has gone a little bit weird with their proportions that we'll get to in a bit. But and they're also... Oh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go I was going to say they're overall fairly large snakes, Yeah, too. the largest one is about two meters and a half or something. It's like yeah. They're like... Meters. I mean, like... So so think, think like, throw a cobra in the ocean and <laughs> and flatten the tail... And you're you're close. You're getting there. You're yeah, and, and the the thing is that they also because they have adapted so well, they're completely pelagic. And what what yeah. that means is that they they are, they're they live in the open sea, so they don't they they are. That's not really true. Most of them do. No, most they're, of them don't. Reef. Uh, most of them are are located around reefs and barely ever so leave their their. Um, Barely ever leave the bays that they are found oh, in. So it's Pelamis platurus, yeah. the only one that goes exactly. into the, the pelagic <laughs> sea snake is called the pelagic sea snake. That's for right, a reason. because that's the only one. <laughs> 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 but what I was going to say is we that because they're so things well, today. because they're, always, they're so well adapted to life in the water in the in marine environments, their uh, ventral scales are all reduced because they don't need it to yeah. right. You know, yeah. to, to so this is a. Land. This is an interesting point. We'll make a very brief tangent. There are not a lot of snakes that don't have differentiated ventral scales. Among them are mostly marine snakes. So yep. the um, Hydrophiini includes several species that have lost them. The Acrocordids have completely, either completely lost them or never had them because they're such a deep branch of snakes. Um, so yeah, there does something... The, seem the to be some relationship. Are either very primitive or they are aquatic marine something. Exactly. Yeah. Also, and it's, most, not, it's most not actually clear if Acrocordus have lost them or not. Like if they ever had them had because them before, of the yeah. their position is um, not entirely stable within the basal uh, area of the tree and they are bordered on one side by well depending on where you put them they either sit with species that have the have ventral scales or don't and so obviously so the yeah these hydrophene um sea snakes also a lot of them tend to be banded and if i remember correctly some fish if i'm correct I, mm -hmm. i'm not sure but i remember hearing correctly that uh f some fish has uh mimic some of the pattern yes uh yes right Am yes I right? Yeah. Uh, yeah uh so, um there's a damselfish i think that does 
and uh, well, there are, there are lots of fish that have that pattern. Octopus too. There's the yes. mimic octopus does the it. Mimic octopus, oh yeah. yeah, mimic octopus are awesome. So they mimic the pattern <laughs> yeah. because these snakes are so venomous. Yes, that, yeah. That, the, the mimic. The, I don't know. Have you ever seen the way the mimic octopus does that? It sits yeah. in a hole yeah. and it With throws the, two arms yeah. out and stripes them and you know waves them yeah. around. It's yeah. great. It's true. The other thing that they, that um, the hydrophini are famous for is being super calm snakes. They are not. Uh, they're not bitey at all. So if you were going to tell me that you're handling that that you're some crazy person, you're handling free handling snakes. If any venomous snake is going to be on your list, I personally, <laughs> if I had to free handle any venomous snake, yeah, I would probably choose one of these. Even though they're amongst the most dangerous snakes in the world, the number of people who handle them, yeah, the death, the like, death free toll handle the, like, them was like zero. Is, it's like uh, yeah. one person was killed last year, I think. It's because they. Like they trod on it, or something. So like, they're and really, really, really uh, rarely dangerous the whole animals. Ocean and and you heard, stepped on I've, a snake. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard that that the reason why their snake, the, their venom is so uh, potent, is because they need to kill their prey really quickly before yeah. it, it swims away, yeah. right? Because they feed mostly on fish. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine um, the. The amount of damage that you can that that an animal can do if it can um, like if it can struggle underwater and when fish struggle, I mean if you if you ever caught a fish and then held it alive underwater, usually it'll like it'll really make a big deal of trying to get away from you, and um, so what's what's cool is that these elapid snakes so they they already had venom coming into the situation, but. The acrocordids, which did not have venom coming into the situation, did not evolve venom, but evolved a different method for subduing their prey. So when the when hydrophines bite onto their their fish, the fish is dead in seconds, right? Maximum a minute. Uh, acrocordis bite their prey, wrap their coils with their extremely loose, baggy skin, which is covered in these file-like, I mean, that's why they're called file snakes, these file-like um, scales that are tiny, tiny scales, creating enormous friction with the animal. And then they, um, they almost always bite from the head, <laughs> and they use the fish's own fear instinct to force the fish to swim into their bodies. <laughs> And thus deal with the problem of not having like not having the fish struggling. They just get the fish to <coughs> gone, yep. and then it's out of the way. <laughs> so it's a, in two different ways of solving the same problem: feeding underwater. Yep. And and these uh, and sea snakes are, are mostly found in the Indian, uh, only found in the Indian and Pacific oceans, right. until recently because um, uh, some. Pelamis platyrus, the yellow-bellied sea snake, has been going through the Panama Canal into the Caribbean. So there are some few specimens that have been found in the, it's, on the it's Caribbean. It's wily pelagic sea snakes. 
Yes, that's why I knew the deal because I was the only one I know I care about because it goes into the into my area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, occasionally um, the the pelagic sea snake does wash up on the shore of Madagascar as well, so it's um, it's relevant to me too. That's uh, cool. Um, uh, what else is there to say about uh, overall sea snake stuff? How, they seem to have salt originated. Well, my first question was, and I oh, did a little okay. research. I thought that was really interesting that they they solved yeah. the ridding their body of salt by using a part of their mouth. Right, it's the tongue near the tongue to actually exchange out salt. Salt glands. Yeah, yeah. they have salt yeah. glands. That's crazy. So this, um, a lot of the research, or most of the research on that topic, has been done by the Lily White Group at the University of Florida, and the stuff that they've published is really cool. Like we, there's been this rumor that um, that a lot of these snakes, and I think it might still be true for the pelagic sea snake in particular, that when it rains, they go to the surface of the water and they basically drink the rainwater from the top because it doesn't. Like it creates a less saline layer. How are they sensing that it's raining underwater? I don't know. Maybe they can hear it. Well, you know, you could see it, right? You can okay. see the drops. That's true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And also, uh, it turns out that sea snakes have these crazy sensilli on their scales. This is a paper that was published in 2000. Oh, I don't know. Uh, 2016 by Crow Riddle et al. Yeah. Jenna Crow Riddle et that, al. The, way uh, the evolution of scale sensilla in the transition from land to sea in a lapid snakes. I mean, it's basically set up in the idea that they can avoid predation by having sensilla on their scales that, that allow them to sounds detect like it's, pressure like it's from acting distances. like a lateral line organ almost. Yeah, it's, it's acting like any kind of um, distant sense organ, all, yeah. all kinds of uh, aquatic animals and and, we and talk also about, subterranean animals have that. We talked thing. last episode that snakes, you know, have developed all kinds of sensing organs. Reptiles are good at that. They develop yeah. sensing organs, organs very quickly. Exactly. But maybe they can also feel that level of yeah. Yeah. stuff happening on the surface. Who knows? But anyway, the idea was somehow that they come to the surface and drink. Well, um... Some of the research that has been done on this group, uh, by uh, done by the Lily White Group in Florida, shows that snakes that sea snakes dehydrate really, really slowly, but a lot of them still need fresh water. Mm. So they do still either come to estuaries or come on land to go to a stream or whatever, so that they can get access to fresh water. So they like stock up and then get back in the ocean. Crazy. That's yeah. Nuts. I. Yeah, bizarre. Yeah, that's one of the things that was um, that was highlighted in this um, in this new review. Huh. One Do we of know the how old that lineage that. is? Yeah, so um, an awesome resource if you're ever interested in finding out the age of a clade. If you can t- define the clade in the sort of phylocode way by one taxon and another taxon, then there's a website called timetree.org where you can put in the two different names and you can find out the ages of that clade and the various different papers that have given different ages um, and that have dated it. So the split of the Hydrophyini that includes the entire group is generally dated at around 6 million years old. 
So moderately recent. recent. Yeah, very recent. Uh, but the Zhang et al. paper, which is the dated phylogeny of all reptiles, pushed it back to 18 million years ago. I would. Which sounds is... Sounds more reasonable to me. I would also say that it's more reasonable, but it's in strong disagreement with all of the other papers. So the three other papers that have done this have all found around 6 million years, and then this one found one that's 18. So I wouldn't consider it stable yet. How does There's that, a nice paper by this, Sanders at all. This might be opening up another can of worms here, but how does that fit in with the the snake origin theory about potentially I know we all I know we've discussed this before, but there's that idea that that marine environments yeah, may have led to the evolution. Oh, these <laughs> these no, are way it, too deep yeah, in the yeah. I mean much too recent it's in terms of snakes. <clears throat> snake. Okay. Uh, yeah. The acrocordids would be a more relevant question. Right. Okay. Now there are fossils of marine. supposedly marine yeah. snakes, but you know. But these, they're, <laughs> yeah. but, they're but, no rela- but no relation know. to these snakes is what you're saying. That they, yeah, yeah. That no. they've evolved. No, no, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Otherwise, we would expect them to be way deeper in. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, I think that we can safely um, bur- bury that particular <laughs> hypothesis because. Yeah. Yes, there's just no evidence to support it. So no, they're they're close closely related to elapids. They're elapids themselves. So right, they are yeah, yeah, they are exactly to cobras, mambas, yeah. cross. No, I, I got that. I yeah. understand. I was just wondering but how there's, this, it made me yeah. think about that that whole yeah. business with you know. So so what's what's interesting is that this group seems to have diversified as a result of entering the marine niche. So there is a diversification there. Uh, but I, uh, none of them have reversed the situation. So it doesn't look like any of them have come back onto land, which would help in the, in supporting a hypothesis of maybe marine snake evolution, like a, mar- mm-hmm. a marine origin for snakes. If, if ever a snake had come back, but generally they seem to rather like it. So <laughs> there's not too much. Yeah, no I to- mean, that seems like a unique, pretty unique niche they've got going right right? so right exactly so um we can we can actually talk a little bit about that uh that revelation that you just had gabriel that most of the snakes are super sessile so um there have been various different studies on on different groups within these things and most of the species of snakes are not moving from one bay to another Mm -hmm. and what that means is that you have, I mean, so over long periods of time, they will eventually, there'll be some gene flow because there are always some kind of large events or one individual that happens to wander over. So there is a limited amount of gene flow, uh, but it's still relatively strong population structure along these different um, coastal bays, essentially. And uh, yeah, except for the pelagic sea snake, almost all of them are really very coastal animals. And as a result, for conservation purposes, they are under some concern, which is basically, I think, what prompted this um, this new review was, you know, there's um, sea snake populations are going extinct and uh, several species that were thought to be extinct were rediscovered recently. So there's sort of um, it's in flux and it it is enough to say okay well we don't we don't understand enough about these animals but it's still sort of um yeah i disagree with the idea that they're 
super understudied. I mean, they are understudied, but they're not super understudied. Well, kind of, but, uh, I, but they are of conservation concern. I was sure. going to say it's kind of like a lot of things where you know they're they're common animals. We have literature on them, but we don't have literature on every single piece of it. We don't, well, have, you know. The, the yeah. problem is that probably for people like uh, Mark and myself who work on neotropical areas where there are seriously understudied groups. I mean, some, some other groups may seem like, no, well, not really. Yeah. You have to see. It depends on where you look it from, like what point of view you right. look it from. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So the final thing that I wanted to talk about with sea snakes is this idea, this, this crazy phenomenon of microcephaly. So I was put on to this subject and by, we and we, uh, we did brief we briefly mentioned we this. have yeah. briefly mentioned it in the past. You're right. I was put onto the subject by listening to Emma Sherritt's talk at the Montpellier um, meeting, where she basically so she does a lot of uh, geometric morphometrics and all kinds of other you know analysis of morphology and evolutionary morphology, and she gave a talk where she was talking about this microcephaly in sea snakes. And uh, my mind was blown because I had no idea that this happens, that you can have a snake that is for two thirds of its body as thick as your arm, but for the anterior third is as thin as your thumb. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just so weird. That is a ridiculous and looking snake. Yeah, it is so, so bizarre. So, so these snakes, in particular, this is Hydrophis uh, atriceps. In particular, is one of the microcephalic microcephalic species. There are a number of different species that have this this feature, where they're you know, they're long snakes, but really most of their body is very thick, and then anteriorly there's just a lot of a lot of very thin snake, like two snakes stuck together. What she talked about in her talk, which unfortunately has not become available now that they put all of the talks from the Montpellier meeting that people signed off on are now available online for free. You can listen to them, which is super cool. Unfortunately, hers is not among them. Um, but the stuff that she was talking about was like, what are the developmental things that are underlying this? Where are, are the vertebrae, are you getting new additional vertebrae that are extending your neck? Or is it a, a new regionalization of these vertebrae? It's all kinds of like very weird stuff that's happening. Anyway, so there is a paper that they published in the Royal Society Open Science Journal in March of this year, which is called uh, Trophic Specialization Drives Morphological Evolution in Sea Snakes. And it is such a fascinating paper. Um, they have basically shown that Dietary specialization on burrowing eels is what has driven the evolution of this morphology. And it's driven it not once, but repeatedly within these snakes. Right. So, um, so yeah, there, there is repeated convergence on this microcephalic uh, morphotype. But what's really cool, so there, there are two different burrowing prey that you can eat as one of these sea snakes. You can eat the burrowing eels, but they're also gobies that mm. burrow. Yep. But the species that eat the gobies that burrow don't develop the uh, micro microcephaly. Yeah. 
So it is really something to do that's associated directly with this. Well, it could be the way it could feeding. be the way that the burrows are constructed too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And how deep the burrow can be if go- you've got gobies, a burrow that's. I, I mean, I've watched gobies construct burrows, and a lot of times they're they're actually quite wide. They're not. Yeah. They're not narrow burrows at all. Yeah. Um, it's the, the the paper is really cool. It's got some very nice figures. I think that's something that. Um, that she does really nicely. And I I was from the beginning, I've been fascinated by the, just the fact that this happens at all. It's not something that I would have expected. And I'm always very surprised when I go to like a, any kind of, anytime I hear about an animal that I've not heard about before at this point, I get really excited because it doesn't happen all that often. That's and this true. was something where I was like, holy shit, what? And I think before we finish this discussion, we should talk really quickly uh, about sea crates, the Laticauda, yeah. that we mentioned right. earlier. Yeah. They are yeah. um, another group of sea snakes, uh, also a lapid. Uh, um, they're the they're, black the black and white, right? They're the yeah, stri- they're yeah. like, like gray and black and banded. They look like they look like crates. They, they look, look like, like, like Tim Burton designed them. Yeah, and yeah. Um, that's the secrets are in the genus Laticauda. They have uh, uh, slightly larger; they're less adapted to a marine lifestyle, so they have slightly larger ventral scales. Yeah, and and they are like they they're like a middle ground between mar- marine snakes, like and yeah, and terrestrial lapids. They still lay eggs, so they have to you know go back to the yeah, to land right. to to lay eggs. And for all of, of you who are here in the U.S. and and watch Survivor sometimes. They often show them there because they always tape in the Pacific, and they, so they, all, they every time they have like a shot of a snake, they usually have a a a, a sea crate crawling oh, yeah. on the shore or something. So, yeah. yeah, I've seen. Well, I've seen. I've definitely seen you know nature documentary type stuff where they show you know like they they tend to come onto like a whole island, right? And they'll just. Yeah, yeah, they go on the island, yeah. and they they are often found in the on land. It's not yeah. like uncommon to find them on land. Not only right. when not only yeah. when they are uh, laying eggs, but normally they yeah. come yeah. to rest. But they are they are also explosive breeders. Mm-hmm. So they they all come on at the same. I mean, I don't. I mean, I use the term explosive breeder because it's usually something we use in frogs when they sort of all congregate and they all mate at the same time. But this is also the sort of thing. So they they're coming, they're mating all simultaneously, and then. Uh, laying eggs and going off. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I would imagine this group invaded the marine area separately from the other group. Yes. It's interesting why this is happening in the Pacific. Does what that, is it about yeah. the Pacific that right. make these groups of snakes do that? It's is it, and is yeah. it more? Is, are they a more recently evolved? Uh, it, uh, did they come into the sea later? Is that what we were saying? I would imagine since they are less, I mean, I don't know exactly what they are we can less find BCOs. Out. Yeah, but also how long ago probably that branch um, split because they seem to have had. To, you would think, have, right, that they would yeah. be more that they would they be are more less recent. specialized yeah. for yeah. A marine um, existence. So. Yeah, they, but they do still already have a, a paddle-like tail and stuff. Yeah, so. and they are, but yeah. the the ventral scales are still a little bit larger. They don't have they. Yeah. They don't. So there are eight species of of uh, laticauda. Lati- yeah. Uh, Which, by um, the way, that's what laticauda uh, means. It's yeah. <laughs> paddle tail. Um, on the topic tail. of why are there no sea snakes in the Atlantic, there's a paper published by Lily White and colleagues 
in bioscience from earlier this year, um, which is called "Why Are There No Sea Snakes in the Atlantic?" Which seems to, yeah, that's convenient. Um, <laughs> and and the answer seems largely to be because of the temperature and because of the currents. Huh. Temperature. So it's warmer, yeah. and they couldn't be in a warmer. See, it should be the opposite, no? Maybe a warmer sea has less oxygen. Well, in general, uh, the Caribbean not, is less oxygen. Because they are diverse. getting a lot of oxygen exchange through their skin, we should say. I mean, it's not like they're fish and they exactly. like they really right. rely on that. But, exactly. but it was it does. like 20 to 25% of their oxygen needs, right? We said we heard that they're able to absorb. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Hmm. That's, I, yeah. I would still. Oh, I think it's also because they can't. Right, the temperature, the real temperature problem is that they can't get around the Cape of Good Hope. Oh. And they no. also can't get around uh, but the... But, the that, but that explains only why that group is not in the Atlantic. Not why some snakes right. in the New World... Why didn't are they go not independently? The yeah, what I meant was, what happened? Why didn't some New World snakes, for example, yeah, why, in the Americas... Why are there no, like, crotalid sea snakes or something? Yeah, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Why, why didn't some boas went into the yeah. sea? Why didn't some colubroids didn't go... Why, why didn't some coral snakes, which are lapids, which are so yeah, prevalent in yeah. the New World, went right. into, yeah. the, into the sea? Well, I mean, there are several different animals that are... Several sort of mangrove snakes that are found in the um, in the Atlantic. Maybe, maybe, given a, en- maybe given enough time, you would see, like, a water moccasin... Yeah, I mean, evolve this, you know more brackish habits, and then you know out to see it goes. Yeah, yeah. there are all, all kinds of things. I mean, why is we just have to give it? We just have to give it twenty million more years, you know. Yeah, and there's also true. no guarantee that it hasn't happened and they've just gone extinct. That's, that's true. true too. That is yeah. true. And and it might be already something in the literature that we don't know. That we don't know. There might be some. Yeah. Somebody must have. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But we'll see about these pelagic sea snakes that have made it across, and and now they're. You know. <laughs> I wish them well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So uh, that is that's going to be a wrap, I think, my friends. We do not <laughs> yeah. have any questions from lizard nerds, nor do we have time for them. Uh, this has been an exceedingly long episode. We are just about to tick over into three hours of recording time. Uh, so it's time for the outro. So where can you find us on the internet, Ethan? Where can one find you? I am at Black Mud Puppy, basically everywhere. Except where he's at nutist.com. Yes, I have that. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gabriel. And I am at, at Serpent Illus uh, Twitter and on Instagram. Um, and also you can find me on Facebook on Gabriel Ugeto Illustrations and um, my website, GabrielUgeto.com. Great. You can find me at Mark Shirts on all of the things, except for Instagram, where I'm Mark underscore Shirts. And you can follow Curse the podcast. Curse you, other Mark Shirts. <laughs> <laughs> there is no other Mark Shirts. I just was stupid when I was oh. setting up the account. Um, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, at Squamates Pod. On Facebook, we're at Squamates Pod. On Instagram, Squamates Pod. You can send us an email at squamatespod at gmail.com. You can go to the website. There you'll find all kinds of 
uh, of links and all of the references and all of the stuff that you need for the show notes. You might even find some cool videos of some crates and some very old Japanese ladies fishing for, uh, uh, for seed crates and all of that stuff. And that is a wrap. So thank you very much for listening. And as we say on the show, Hakuna Skumada. Hakuna Skumada. Skumada.